Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Lookout Podcast. I'm joined with Reen for part three of the Reen series. Episode three. Yeah, how are we doing, Reen? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Oh, doing great, man. Great to have you. So glad to have you back. Yeah, it's fun. Good, beautiful day out today. Oh, it is gorgeous, man. I mean, first week of spring, I guess, kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. Pretty nice. Yeah. And then we left off right about the, right after Hotshot experience, right? Yeah, 85 was, uh, or excuse me, 95 was the last season, and... Uh, the next year I went back to Sula, where, which is where I started. I'd worked at Sula from 76 through 84 and then traveled a little with the hotshot crew that year and then was on the crew in 85 through 95 and then went back to Sula as it turned out for three seasons. So 96 was the first season back and it was kind of cool because Bill Burhop uh, was, uh, well, like the head guy on the fire crew. Uh, at that point in time, and he'd been a buddy since way back. Oh, really? He used to travel with the Hotshot crew, actually, before I was ever on it and stuff. So it was good to have him in charge out there. And Walt Smith, who'd been a jumper forever and was one of one of all of our mentors and stuff, Walt was the FMO there oh, then. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so... Was it, it kind of like a reunion when you went back then? It or? was. It was pretty cool. You know, they were the only two that I had known from earlier, other than some of the secretaries and stuff were still there from the old days. Yeah. But the crew folks were all a new bunch, but they were they were really good folks, so... I don't think we had anybody new on the crew that first year. They'd all been there at least the year before or the year before that. So, oh, gotcha. And some of them for quite a while before that. So it was it was a good bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So the cool thing about that era when I went back was 96, and we might as well talk a little bit about Air Patrol now. Yeah. 96 was the first season that I got to start doing air patrol flights 96 yeah 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 and and i'm still doing them now so 96 through 2022 and 23 is coming up yeah but but that was when i first got to go uh i think i had mentioned in episode one that the air patrol had gone up just a few days to take before i was supposed to go up to medicine point lookout to staff it to just make sure it looked like you know it was accessible and everything and jim crockett who was the dispatcher um he got me on the flight so i could go check stuff out and it was cool because we went all over the whole forest we didn't just go to sula but so i got a a pretty well my first real aerial look of the bitterroot forest you know Man. i was pretty blown away i had no idea how far west it went and all that kind of stuff you know yeah even like my, after my first year in steve because you know being on the north side of the forest we didn't explore down there and then when i finally did a little stint in dispatch and i saw the full map i was like well, i didn't realize we were in idaho west, you know west fork's huge it is yeah, huge it really is huge but anyway we uh yeah so that was the first time i went up with them and i don't I don't think I went on another air patrol, in quotes, flight until 96. And, you know, I'd expressed interest and stuff. And so, actually, to back up slightly, in when I was on the Sula crew, uh, let's see, so this would have been in 80, one of the guys on our fire crew, Brian Hennis was his name, he, he had gotten a pilot's license, and he got... This other guy, Richard Bailey, who was on the stand exam crew, interested in flying also. So the two of them bought a Cessna 150 oh, cool. that summer. Didn't pay very much for it, and it, but it was airworthy. It was a good plane. Yeah. And so 
I went up a couple of times with uh, Brian because uh, Richard didn't have his license yet and he couldn't technically fly without an instructor at that point. Oh. So we did some lookout cruises. That's the first time I saw salmon and some of the West Fork lookouts from the air because yeah. um, Brian knew where they all were. He'd flown out there. And so we you know, took a look at some of the ones I'd never never seen other yeah. than salmon was you know, a long way on Medicine Point's western horizon and stuff like that. Oh, really? So you kind of see it from Medicine Point You Tower? can see it, yeah. Through, oh, wow. You can see the mountain for sure, and, you know, you can kind of see the lookout. It's a long way, but through Binox, you could totally see it. Oh, really? Yeah. Man, I wish yeah. I when I was up there. Yeah, so that was fun. So flying with those guys and uh, Richard working on a license – the the 81 fire season way back, way back then was a really good one and i'd saved a lot of money and i went down to my mom's that winter and i took flying lessons oh really yeah out at el Cajon flying service el Cajon's lalise to san diego and it's a really good place to learn because Lindbergh field is the major big airport you know you and i were talking about that actually yeah. it now it's the largest in number of passengers, single runway airport, major airport in the United States, because it only has room for one runway. It's all completely surrounded by either military stuff or residences. Yeah. So not a good place to learn. Probably no. probably would have been, but it's complicated because of the controlled airspace and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Lynn, and the excuse me, Elcon Flying Service was more casual. I mean, you still had to be careful where you flew but you know it's not as big and bustly as the huge airport and stuff yeah so that winter i took flying lessons and uh i didn't know what i was going to do with it for sure i kind of thought it'd be cool to fly for the forest service you know yeah but uh uh it ended up that i just was having too much fun on the ground and stuff and i just you know didn't didn't figure I'd ever get enough hours to ever be able to do anything for the Forest Service. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. But well, it was a great place to learn. It was it was fun down there. And when I came back uh, and had my license that next summer, I could rent planes at the little airport in Hamilton. Yeah. And I did a few times. But, you know, it was even then, renting an airplane was pretty expensive. And yeah. so I'd have to try and find some of my Forest Service pals to to kick in you know to pay for a flight and stuff and did that for about a year not a real lot but did it you know maybe once a month or every two months or something like that for about a year and then it, it was just too expensive yeah but i have fuel and all that too right yeah yeah, yeah. It, relatively speaking i mean avgas was still more than anything else but you know it was just too much money yeah. but it was fun i'm glad i did it and i learned a lot of stuff about flying and uh yeah, and I expressed interest. I don't remember how it came up that they might need somebody to help fly because for years and years, Mick Dizel, who was the Forest FMO here on the Bitterroot for a really long time, he was a local Bitterroot kid and started working for the Forest Service, I think, as soon as he got back from Korea in like 1952 or 53. Oh, jeez. Yeah, just as a, a, a temporary trail guy and stuff and then worked his way up and did tons of fire stuff and became the forest fmo Dang. yeah and so he used to do a lot of the air patrol flights i remember in those early years when we'd go on fires nine times out of ten he'd be the one uh that was the observer oh wow. and he was phenomenal i don't i don't know how he did it but 
he could tell townships and ranges and sections and stuff without hardly even looking at the map. And I don't, I have no idea how he did it. Really? So like he could just be looking at a section of the he, earth. He just, <laughs> he knew where stuff was, or he just glanced at a map and he basically knew where it was. was yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. But yeah, he he guided us, guided us into a number of fires, you know, and we'd be out on smoke chaser fires and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, anyway, that's handy to have a guy like that, you know. Yeah, he was really good. Um, anyway, he, uh, he was still, he was forced FMO still, but he, you know, he, he didn't fly that much anymore. And I had expressed interest in being an observer. And so that 96 season, I got to, I don't, I didn't go on very many flights, just a few actually, but yeah. got my foot in the door, you know, and made sure that everybody knew before the next season that i want to do that again you know if i can i'd like i'd yeah. love to do it through name in the hat yeah yeah so i think there was maybe only one maybe two years from 96 through this last year that i didn't get to go on any flights at all oh really yeah that's I mean, really good I, yeah no it was it was really good and so on the 4th of July in 96, Marty Tesdell, who was the radio tech here back in those days, the two of us got to um, go on a patrol flight. And we found a fire that was named the Old Warriors Face Fire on West Fork. This is 96. Yeah. Uh, on the 4th of July. And there was another fire in Sweat Creek, which is across the Selway River. And the two of them became a complex. And they got big. They got really big and burned almost all summer and stuff like that. So oh, man. Marty and I thought it was pretty cool that we we found that first fire. They were both yeah. they were both fires that were allowed to burn. Um you know, that's always been controversial to some extent with some people and stuff like that too. Yeah. And I know the West Fork crew had hiked up to look at Old Warrior's face, which was just like a 10-minute walk off the uh uh, road to Magruder. Oh, really? To get up to it and checked it out, and they could have put it out really easily, but they weren't allowed to do that. And then a little later, it went nuts. Oh, and did so it? did the other one. Uh, yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. kind of what the a lot of the controversy goes with letting a fire burn is that yeah, if you can put it out, you know, it's small, you know, and low risk you know versus right, big right. and high risk you know. And they burned, like I say, they burned until fall, you know, and so. Man. Anyway, we found that, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on that year. Not not really intense fire other than that, and it wasn't on our district, so we didn't have a lot happening. Oh, but we did a bunch of smoke chaser fires and did some fall burning and stuff like that. And then that next season in 98, basically the same. I got to do a few more flights that year. And so when I went back, I had gone to um, Hilltop Lookout, once earlier yeah. back in 79 was the first time that i got to go up there with some folks on the crew you know there's a big clear cut you've been up there yeah, there's yeah. a big clear cut on the i guess it'd be the north side of the ridge i think it's pretty pretty grown in now but back yeah. in those days you could pretty much just cut through the old logging road there and uh, just, you know, hike up to the top of it really easily. Now, not so easy because no. those, those trees are big in there. But yeah. at that point in time, the tree platform was totally climbable. I mean, it was still in 
pretty good shape. Oh, really? Did you climb yeah. up there? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I I, I used the, I used the tree limbs because the ladder was was I mean what was left of it was not right. safe. It was it was totally intact back in '79. So oh, that's was, cool. Yeah, and the platform was in really good shape too. Yeah. So we climbed up there and looked around and stuff, you know. And that's Crockett cool. had told me that there was a cabin up there that he knew about, um, and the lookout actually lived in this small cabin, which was pretty close to where the the uh, the tree was the big oh. dug fir yeah yeah and actually we found a picture in the files at sula that said the that it was the hilltop cabin but what's weird about it is um the cabin doesn't doesn't have any trees around it at all mm. and i I know there. I know there had to have been trees there, you know, at that time, other than just the big lookout tree. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm trying to remember because there's there, as far as I can remember, there's a few trees around that look the same age or similar to. Yeah, the and, it, and it was kind of baffling, you know, where it was, and yeah. so I hiked up there again in '97 and took some people from the crew up there, and then I hiked up there. I hadn't been up there for a long time, and I hiked up just maybe three or four summers ago oh yeah i went out there on my own and just you know hiked up there and uh, hung cool. out for a little while and everything and i found the footprint i found the old outhouse and i found on the not the uh tollen side of the ridge but the opposite side i found a footprint of what might have been a little building and i thought oh this is probably where the cabin was but no it can't be because Unless that photo was labeled incorrectly or something, there there were no trees visible at all in the photo. Yeah. So then I got to thinking that maybe the cabin was up on the exposed ridge top, you know, just a little bit where your fire kind of came up this last year. Yeah, yeah. That maybe it was out there. But that seemed like a kind of a stupid place to have built a cabin because it would have been right in the, the wind flow and everything like that. So, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So I'm not really sure. You I know, wonder, because I think I found the same footprint as you not too far from the tree, and that that where that footprint is makes mo way more sense. Did you see that? Be. Yeah, I took yeah. a picture of it because I found the corner, you know, of it. Yeah. I was like, these, are, these lines are way too straight to be here just, you know, yeah. naturally. So, so I don't know for sure if that was that particular cabin or not, but it definitely would have had trees visible in the photo you know if they had a if it had been there because it looked like a bald hill yeah so, huh. so i don't know i wonder yeah that's, that's strange yeah yeah maybe someone got confused with sula back in the day or something yeah but anyway that was cool and uh i had i had hiked out before i went to the hotshot crew to hilltop i might have mentioned that before because hilltop had been um a tree with a ladder and a platform in it too. Yeah. Big dug fir. And yeah. back in those days there was there was when I hiked up there, that was probably in seventy nine also. Um wait, which which one when you hiked up the hilltop you said or a TP point. Oh TP point. Me. Oh gotcha. I'm sorry. I'm at yeah. TP point. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Talking about the same one yeah. twice. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. No, a TP point oh, was, that was, was a... also a tree lookout. Oh gotcha. And you know, it was it was amongst huge old growth dug fir. It was beautiful hiking up there because the road didn't go all the way up to it. Oh. And uh, but 
the, it was in really sad shape. I mean, I didn't even try to climb it or anything like really? that. Oh. But it was cool that it was out there. And, you know, there's old maps that show the phone line that went up to it and stuff from down on the East Fork Road and <laughs> tied into the guard cabin up there and all that stuff. Oh, really? All, all the way down to the East Fork Cabin, huh? Yeah. That's a cruise, huh? Yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah, so, and then the hill, the, the phone line from Hilltop came bailing off down into the basin there through the Whetstone Ranch, actually. Oh, really? And teed into that same uh, line that went back to Sula. Oh, cool. And, and then on to Darby and God knows where all, you yeah. know. And they... And, and back then they could make the call, the phone line would go all the way to the tower platform, so they could make a call from the platform and not have to come down? Oh, that I, that I don't know. I wonder. Because, yeah, I'm not sure that the, you know, some of them, they mounted a phone um, down lower. Where, but, well, I mean, like down on the base of the tree or something like that. And yeah, makes more sense. And I don't know what kind of a phone it was, because some of them were the wooden box phones, but they also had... Uh, phones that were called an iron box phone and it was a, a big like iron box with a heavy door and the phone was inside of it oh there used to be one of those out i guess on the road to salmon right down by the trailhead for salmon way oh. b- way back cool yeah um so i i don't know what kind of a phone it was but it did have one yeah that's so, cool yeah it was really cool yeah, so it was fun getting to see that stuff and everything, you know. And, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, 97, nothing too descript happened other than, you know, getting to do some of those things. And that next year in 98, um, late 97, they had decided that uh, Medicine Point was going to become, was going to get restored and was going to become a rental soon, like 98 or 99, somewhere in there. Yeah. So they started working on it in 97 um they completely redid all the the base logs and all that sort of stuff and painted it and did all the work that needed to be done and us from the crew we got to go up a couple of times not for the whole day because by the time you get to work and do pt and then hike up there you know it's good chunk of the day takes gone. A, yeah good chunk of the day is gone but we got to go up when they were working on it and help do some of the jacking up for the uh, replacement of the poles and stuff like that. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, that's really cool, man. I'd, I'd love to have been a part of that experience. Yeah, it was neat. And they made a they made a Medicine Point restoration T-shirt, which was pretty cool. I I got one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. cool. So that was cool. Man. And so we had a bunch of smoke chaser fires in eighty in ninety six, and um. I got to go up to Willow Mountain up east of here. Yeah. The drainage, the Willow Creek drainage had two pretty good sized fires in it that both started from lightning at about the same time. So they had a, a type two team there and Jerry Feynman, who had been the FMO at West Fork, he was retired then, but he was doing AD stuff. So he was in charge of this. Um, it was like a type three team. And so, I got to go up there and I was already strike team leader qualified and stuff like that and division trainee, but I got to go up to it and spend maybe about a week with him and, and he let me do some minor ops kind of stuff, you know, which was, which was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Get some experience. Yeah. Good experience. And we had a trapper crew and a couple other crews up there. And there were folks that I knew from the different districts that got to come up as squad boss trainees and all that sort of thing. So 
that was a pretty neat experience. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, getting involved with all of that. But to get back to the Air Patrol stuff, so, you know, I was able to keep doing it. So as far as Air Patrol goes, there's a little bit of history there, and I brought something to show. Oh, cool. So back in, in those days, you you couldn't, in an Air Patrol plane, you couldn't, because they were Cessnas. Oh. Over the years, I flew in probably five different Cessnas of three or four different models. But back in those early years... Uh, six seven X-ray was the primary plane, and and uh, uh, Western Montana Aviation had the contract. They were out of the Stevensville Airport. Oh, a guy named Delbert was the one that owned it. And, oh, gotcha. Yeah, and and they flew they flew us for a lot of years, but the way we would do it was, you even the old forest maps, but especially these new ones, you 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 couldn't. You couldn't spread out a map in an airplane. I mean, it's, the pilot the wouldn't be able to see what was going on, <laughs> and especially the new ones because they're a lot bigger than these old ones were. Oh, yeah. So what they had done, and these maps actually predated me. The reason I've got them is because we we got some new one, We made some new ones later on. So what they had done was they had cut out each of the four districts oh, on yeah. the map and then laminated them. And so the way the, the way the plane was, we kept the briefcase behind the passenger, the observer, which was me, on the right-hand seat. Oops. And I had it in a place where if I needed to get any materials or whatever out of it, I could. But you'd keep, you'd keep a, a tablet and some, um, some fire report sheets, which are basically the same as they are now. Oh, yeah. Keep some fire report sheets and that on your lap but down between the seats you'd have all four of these maps one for each of the districts Sula, Darby, Stevensville and West Fork oh yeah and then as you reached the edge of a district and we're about to go on to another one you'd put this map back and get the next one out you know and keep it on your lap well this is back before any of the forest maps had topo lines on them or anything. I mean, oh, they showed drainages, and you could tell where creeks were because they were blue-colored and all that. And mount, major mountains, you know, were were named, and the creeks were named. But there was there was no super precision on exactly where you were in the plane, other than that. And it was a big learning experience for me early on. What yeah. you'd have to do if you were flying a particular district was if you, you'd have this on your lap while you were observing. And so you'd pick out some landmark that you were going by that you knew what it was and you'd put your finger on it. And then as you'd progress, you'd look for another landmark that you knew and put your finger on it because otherwise, you know, you had no reference point of exactly where you were yeah. other than that. And so it was it was pretty interesting, you know. Yeah. And so every 15 minutes Bitterroot dispatch, they had a timer. They'd set it for f when when they'd call you to check in, you'd tell them where you were and they'd reset it and 15 minutes later it would ring again and then you we didn't we didn't hear it, but yeah. dispatch hear it and then whoever was in charge that day of talking to the plane doing the check-ins and stuff would call six seven x-ray this is bitter dispatch what's your location so 
I used to always watch my watch so that I knew a couple of minutes before they were going to call and I could be sure that I had some landmark that I knew what it was, you know, like yeah. that. So I didn't have to fumble around or anything. Yeah. And yeah. Take up radio time. Like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> but, you know, then when you'd find fires, of course, in the early years, it was a lot harder. But fortunately, Delbert grew up here and had lived here all of his life and had flown here forever. And he knew virtually where everything was, too. Yeah. So he was a huge help. If he And he flew a lot. It was his company, you know, and he liked flying. So he'd fly a lot of the patrols. And he was a great help, you know, because he knew where everything was. And I was just learning. I mean, I knew where some, some stuff was the ground, but stuff doesn't look the same from the plane. I At mean, the, all, man. The angle of the mountains and everything is just totally different, you know. Yeah. And so when you'd find a fire, that was the really challenging part because... You know, if you'd been watching and paying attention, just for example, if you were out on West Fork and you knew that the fire was in the Indian Creek drainage, well, the Indian Creek drainage is gigantic. And since you have no topo lines, you just have to kind of guesstimate exactly where you are and where little sub-drainages come down into the major drainages and all that stuff. Yeah. So... You know, we got pretty good at the townships and range and the section, but the quarter sections and stuff were, unless unless the fire was right next to a super known object like a lake or a particular mountaintop or some reference point on the ground, the quarter section and the quarter quarter was yeah. really, really hard. In the southwest, <laughs> the southeast. And yeah, yeah, yeah all that the, stuff. Yeah. But, you know, it, it got us in the ballpark, yeah. so it worked. And that's that's pretty much, these are the maps we used all along. Man, that's awesome. And then we made a new set in 2003. We had the new forest map, but we didn't, we, we carried it, but we didn't use it because they were huge. The, the parts were just you know, the scale was somewhat different, and they were just too big. Yeah, I could see that. But by then, I knew where a lot of stuff was. Not everything, but a lot of stuff. But the cool part, as far as making making it way more efficient, was when finally the forests had computers and iPads came out and stuff like that, and the forest got a dedicated iPad that uh, we used in air patrol and we still use it. I think this is the second one and I think they're about due to probably upgrade it now. Yeah. But that was really cool because the forest map was on the iPad, the events map. Yeah. And all the all the topo lines and all that stuff were there. And the cell signals have been really good. The iPad, you know, would get them from all over because we were up at elevation and stuff like that. So we very seldom had anything give out you know yeah but we always and to this very day we still carry the paper maps regardless because if the if for some reason the ipad goes out you need redundancies right yeah, yeah. but most of us take our phones and stuff oh, yeah, with true. us too yeah and and i've i and a lot of other people i've got the events map on my phone and generally if if you lose a signal in one you don't lose the signal on the other one so I've used the phone a couple of times as a backup. Yeah. But the cool part of that is, you know, the events of map. So you turn on the iPad before you go on a flight nowadays, before you go on a flight, 
And so when you're in the plane getting ready to taxi for takeoff, it's turned on and you check it. And the airplane is represented by a little blue circle. Yeah. You can change the color, but we just use the blue circle. And so you can see it on, you can see it sitting on the runway on the map, on the, on the, on the map, you know, because you can like do your fingers like you do on a phone and everything, you know, and, and move the, the, the view in and out. Yeah. Zoom in, zoom out. yeah. Yeah. So when you're flying, wherever that blue dot is, it's exactly pretty much exactly where the plane is over the terrain yeah they're really accurate these days they're really good yeah. yeah and that's made that's made the hugest difference because you can you can just follow it you don't have to keep your finger on it you know because you can just see it yeah and you actually spend more time concentrating on drainages and trying to see fires and stuff like that you know because you don't have to like with these make sure you know exactly where you're at you know and everything yeah yeah. so that's been pretty cool and the cool part about too with that events of map is that you know when you have when you spot a fire you have the pilot um fly in a straight line over the fire and usually always from their side because i want them to see that we're centered over the fire and then they will just relay to me okay when i'm right on top of the fire as I'm approaching it, I'll give you a three, two, one now. And when they do that, I can punch the little button thing on the iPad and it drops a pin where the fire is. So instantly you can look on the map and you can see the township range section and you can figure the quarter section really easily. Plus down at the bottom of the iPad, it's got the lot long. Oh yeah. You know, so you can call what we do is called now, nowadays, we never used lot longs because we didn't have GPS stuff way back. Yeah. And so now we just call Hamilton Air Patrol with a smoke report. Usually before you call it in, there's a little, a few minutes because you get the, uh, um, the size up report out oh. and fill in the major stuff before, you know, Five minutes of doing that's not going to make a difference on most of the fires anyway, you know, especially smoke chaser fires. But nothing takes off, like, immediately. Yeah. So you got a little time so that when you call Hamilton in, you've already looked on the map and seen if, if the fire is near some road access or next to a trail. And that one way, when you give the information, you, know, you call in and you tell them we've got a smoke report and they tell you when they're when they're ready and you say okay i've got a smoke and it's in the medicine tree drainage i'm just making it up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in the medicine tree drainage the lot long is blah 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 which my conversion is township blah 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 range section quarter section and it and then you give them what you feel the size of it is you know yeah, it's spread potential all that yeah a tenth of an acre or less or or bigger you know, <laughs> yeah, or sometimes they're bigger if they've been burning in a place where a lookout couldn't see them yeah you know and you give them all that information you have and then ask dispatch if they if they have any other needs if they if there anything else before you leave that area that they want to know and once in a while they will they'll they'll have yeah, could you take a look at that, fly over that road, that approach road, and see if it looks like it's usable? 
Well, it's it's hard to know sometimes if they're usable because some of the roads, you know, that are out there over the forest, you can see them there, but some of them are decommissioned or have Kelly humps on them and stuff like that. And yeah. usually, sometimes you can see that stuff, but sometimes if it's the road goes through trees and stuff, you can't, you know. So right. that's when dispatch gets on the phone and talks to the district, to the FMO or whatever, and they usually have a better map that shows commissioned and decommissioned roads and stuff like that. And they can, they can tell, um, you know, the firefighters that are going to go out there. Best best access and stuff. Yeah. What the best access they think is going to be. Sometimes from us, we can tell them because it's just like, it's really obvious where it is. Yeah. Especially if it's land you're familiar with country. you're familiar with. You go to the end of this road and it looks like it's about a quarter mile from there in such and such a direction and it's on an open slope and you're going to be able to see it you know yeah so which is really nice yeah that's really nice when you can do that yeah but that's how that's how it worked with the maps in the old days police car yeah oh man or ambulance or something yeah that's how it worked and uh, these are what we used um in the old days and like i said we still we still keep the pay actually i think the newer version of these are still in there because we never did cut out the new forest map that's got the top of lines and stuff because they're still yeah. kind of too big. Mm, you know? gotcha, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's tight quarters in there for sure. I mean, to pull out any kind of map, it's, you know, elbows to elbows. Yeah. You know? yeah. I've been lucky over the years that I never knock on wood and I haven't yet. I, I never get airsick, you know, and so I, I don't have any problem not once sometimes i have to have the plane circle a fire a number of times because there'll be certain information that dispatch is probably going to need especially if it's a wilderness fire you know oh yeah more information on what drainages lead into where it is and if it looks like there's a trail in them and stuff like that and so i mean i can i can pretty easily look out the window while the plane's banked and look back to the map and look back and look back and write something down and look back and sometimes if i'm writing i lose track of exactly where the fire is but the pilot knows exactly where the fire is because that's their job too is to Keep help you with that so yeah. oh, i kind of lost where it is and goes you're going to see it in just a second here at your one o'clock low or whatever you know yeah yeah so it's a it's a team thing you know and when we're when we're flying the forest and we've had lightning dispatch the next morning usually nowadays anyway has the lightning map that shows you know the general area where strikes and stuff were yeah and sometimes those maps if there's been a lot of strikes i mean there's just like you've seen them there's like, like cluttered yeah like, clusters and clouds and lightning. yeah like, Dang. so i don't really usually worry about that too much other than that you, you can pull it in far enough you can tell what part of the forest and what drainages are involved and then you know that for sure you're going to fly those places and that if there are a lot of strikes you're going to be looking everywhere you yeah. know to try and find stuff yeah. yeah and a lot of times the the do will request right like after a big storm like well yeah. we request air patrol for tomorrow and then that's when they call you right yeah they yeah yeah they they they'll request a flight and they call dispatch and then dispatch usually talks to the aviation officer like tyler now if oh. he's around yeah and then he calls me or whoever and goes hey you want to fly today and, yeah 
what time. That's you know? cool. Yeah, and then you come in far enough ahead. To, yeah, so you could be out doing kind of whatever around your house or whatever. All of a sudden, it's like, all right, ready to roll. Topping a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. pretty cool, though. It is pretty cool. It keeps life exciting, you know. Like, oh, yeah, yeah sure, I'll take a flight. We used to have to come in to dispatch, but now you can just go to Hell Attack. And, oh. and nowadays, because of computers and stuff, dispatch will send any information on fires that popped up since the day before they'll send you all that information in an email attached to an email to the iPad. And hmm. so I always plan on getting there, whether there's been fires reported or not. If we're going to fly, let's say, at 11 a.m. or 1300 or whatever it is, um, I usually get there at least an hour earlier and sometimes more if there's been a lot of lightning activity because they'll give me this huge list of all these fires that the lookouts have turned in and stuff like that. Yeah. And if I have time, I can go ahead and enter those fires on the iPad and drop a pin with, with the name on there. And that way I can kind of game plan what route the plane's going to fly. Sometimes they leave it up to me. Sometimes we do the standard pattern where you leave Hamilton and go north on the east side cross over to the west at the north end of the forest, come back down to like Lake Como, cut across Darby, do Sula, from Sula go on to West Fork, do all of West Fork, and then come back. That's kind of the standard pattern. But, oh, you know, it, it changes depending on where the fires have been. If fires are everywhere and nobody has a real priority, let's say that West Fork has something that they really need you to look out first. If they do, you'll know that. Oh. And then we'll just tell dispatch when we're in the plane ready to fly that because of West Fork's request, we're going to go out there first. Oh, gotcha. And then we're in combo with them all the time. So, I mean, they can see where we are because they have us on the flight following now, too. Yeah. So you don't need that timer anymore to tell them where you are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good call. And they're super helpful, too, because they, they have the... Uh, the flight program stuff that uh, can see other aircraft that have transponders and stuff like that. Yeah. They can tell if there's another aircraft. And I've, I've had them call any number of times to tell us that um, we're showing a plane um, coming from the southwest off the salmon that looks like it's on the same track as you, but its elevation is, you know, like 15,000 feet and we're at, nine thousand or something like that yeah so you know it's kind of it's kind of good that they can do that yeah it's really nice man look yeah. weird on the tracking because if you didn't know the elevations because you know going right over top of each other yeah you know. and most of the pilots now have their own flight program oh that's and a lot of those are really really good i mean they can see radar weather stuff you know oh awesome and they can also see more aircraft i know pilot Kurt Klein, summer before last when we were flying, he goes, oh, there's an aircraft that looks like it's heading right toward us. It's five miles out. But don't worry, it's at 40,000 feet. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. It's a jetliner. No, yeah. It's a jetliner. I mean, all that kind of stuff will show up and everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So so it's it's it's. I would say it's 
I've never felt uncomfortable. I feel relatively safe, you know, with what dispatch can see. And the lookouts are really cool, too. You know, when we do lookout training every year, we talk to folks, even if they've been around for 25, 30 plus years, that that's the kind of stuff that Air Patrol needs to know. If you see a plane flying over your lookout or from your lookout, if you can tell what elevation your guesstimate is that it is and what its heading is, and they hear us because they monitor the frequency that we use to talk to dispatch and to them. Yeah, yeah. They know, they have kind of an idea of where we are the whole time anyway. And so when we're about to come on to their for, to their part of the forest, they'll call and say, hey, I've got a, a single-engine aircraft uh, with a red tail that is at approximately such and such elevation from my location and where they think it is and what direction. Yeah. And so then we, if we're anywhere near that vicinity, then we can keep an eye out for stuff too. Oh yeah. That's handy. More safety for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's these controversies, you know, and one of the reasons that they started getting rid of lookouts after the fifties, after the 1950s and stuff because oh well, we have airplanes now you know we don't we don't really need lookouts anymore well that's that's really not true no and having started as a lookout i'm on their side yeah. i don't want lookouts to go away me either because they're they're incredibly valuable they're yeah. just incredibly valuable and i, I agree it's probably why i named my podcast the lookout because i wanted to get there you go more, yeah more coverage on the you know what they do and get more curiosity about it you know yeah and the thing is that the two platforms the lookout and the plane really are are a team i mean yeah. i because i started as a lookout i just look upon myself when i'm in the plane as an aerial lookout yeah you know doing the same job they're a fixed position so in a lot of respects you know a fire can pop up after we're gone because anything that's within any of those lookout scene area they they're pretty good they don't miss stuff very often ever yeah they might miss something right after it starts because it's in the clouds but when those clouds go away they got it yeah, yeah they, they got it that's what they do that's what they love you know yeah. and they're really good at finding stuff and so the way it works best really is the plane can look at places that the lookouts can't see in yeah like blind spots right and that's the beauty of that and you know in the old days that used to be different because there were so many lookouts that they all had overlapping country yeah you know they could there were sometimes and well, West Forks, for an example, that there are there places that I know of that used to have lookouts that three lookouts could see portions of the same country, yeah. you know, from different angles and stuff like that. And that's when they would use the Allidade to get the azimuth and where these crossed. And sometimes the location would cross from three different lookouts and the dispatcher at West Fork or wherever would be like, that's that's exactly where the fire is because all three of them you know these these three three azimuth lines yeah, like, cross at the same exact point yeah, yeah like triangulate pretty, right pretty there cool. that's really cool yeah. Tanner, yeah i talked to tanner last year him and um uh geez deer mountain um ellie 
him and Elliot got to do uh, a fire like that where they were both able to cross and, you know, compare uh-huh. notes on it and, like, just nailed it, like you said. And he was pretty pumped because, like you said, it's more of an old-school way of finding fires. It's perfect, though. I mean, it works. It totally, it's the same thing on the map that the plane would see, except that they plotted it from the ground, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and so that's, it works best that the plane can see stuff that the lookouts are not able to visually see. And one of the important areas, and we go there a lot, is when we have a lot of lighting in the big mountains on the west side here. Yeah. You know, I mean. Little steep drainages. Willow and Ellie and St. Mary's can see some stuff, but they don't very often see stuff that's way up these big west side canyons because, you know, as you know, most of these canyons, they run west from the valley floor. But it's interesting that so many of the big canyons on the west side, they take a turn to the south at their heads. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, if you look on a, on a Bitterroot map, you can see yeah. that. There's, they curve most of them, and it's always a big curve to the left huh. from the main drainage. You have to look. And there are places where the heads of two or three of those big canyons will be almost the same block of granite you know at the back end there oh really where they start yeah it's really interesting yeah but if we get a report that there's been a lot of lightning up there usually ellie or tanner on on willow or st mary's depending on you know what they can see they'll tell us that we saw lightning uh that dropped it looked like into the head of bear creek or someplace you know yeah but nobody can see in there so we go up there and there have been times where we've spent an hour just on the Bitterroot face, starting at, at whichever end, just flying, flying the drainages up and down and looking. Yeah. Sometimes we find stuff, sometimes we don't, you know. But the pilot's a big part of it, too, because the pilot, I'll tell the pilot, you know, okay, let's fly down the center of the drainage above it, and I'll look at all the stuff on the right-hand side, and you tell me if you see anything on the other side. And then when we get to the top and shift our position a little bit and come back, it's the same thing in reverse. I'll look on that side, and the pilot will look on the side that I looked at originally. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah so, we, so we help one another that way. you know. Yeah. And the pilot sometimes will see something before I do. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, or I'll just happen to catch a little smoke out of the corner of my eye and go, hey, look over there. Look at 1 o'clock low up there on that shelf. Oh, by God, there's a fire there, you know? Yeah, sometimes you can, like, wisp, you know? Yeah. And, like, be able to pick up that wisp sometimes is Sometimes just a little wisp, you know? Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, the lookouts and I, all these folks are personal friends of mine. I mean, we've worked together for years, especially the West Fork lookouts, because I went out there in 01, and Mark and Rep Moak, yeah. and Christy and Jim came about two years later, but Bearco Mark came at the same time as the Mokes did in 97, oh. so before I was working out there. Oh, wow. And so they and I have been friends all these years, you know, personal friends as well as work colleagues, so to speak, and all yeah. that stuff, you know. Were the, were the Mokes out at spot in 97? No, they 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 started at Hell's Half. Oh, Hell's Half. Yeah, oh, they were at Hell's Half until the end of 2016, and then they went to spot after that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, but Mark's been at Bear Con all those years. Man. 97 till now. Yeah. Yeah, and Christy and Jim have been on Lookout Mountain since, I think, 2003. Oh, really? Yeah. 20-year run. Yeah. Well, then, it's counting this year. Then, of course, the Salmon folks are volunteers, but there's folks on that volunteer group 
like William Boggs, who he and his wife, Deidre, first staffed Salmon when it was a paid lookout in 1971. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. a long run. That's cool. So they know that country. And he knows that country. He and Deidre aren't married anymore, but he still is part of the volunteer group. William is one mm-hmm. of the, one of the co-leaders. Yeah. He knows where everything is out there. Oh, I bet. And some of the other folks on the Salmon volunteer group, Linda Ambling and some others, were West Fork lookouts back in the early 1980s. And they they know all that country inside out too. Yeah, I bet. that's so yeah. cool, man. So what we do when I when I go on each district, you know, I'll I'll call the lookout from the air even even if I've gotten information from dispatch on fires. I'll call, say, Tanner, because he's one of the first ones that I'll go by. Usually we we fly for elevation between Deer Mountain and Willow, and I'll check in with both of them and go, okay, we're climbing for altitude, and we're going to go north on the east side. So, Ellie, do you have anything that I'm going to probably fly over in Scalcaho that you want me to look at now? before I go and sometimes she will and sometimes she said no you can just wait till you come back down and then we'll figure out where you're going to cross I'll call Tanner and he'll he'll tell me if he's got any stuff he wants to look at because he's got blind spots too back in that uh, that country back Burton Fort country yeah he can't see down into that big drainage you know he can see little pieces of the higher part but he can't see down into the bottom so that's a major spot that if they've had lightning that Willow wants us to look is fly that burnt fork drainage. And yeah, Gold Creek and all that. Gold Creek and yeah, yeah, all that stuff that's hidden back up in there. Yeah, because it kind of hooks underneath him, you know? Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. 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 So same with St. Mary's and then, of course, all the West Fork lookouts in Sula are all the same too as to how I'll call them and check in with them. Yeah. And they'll go, I can see, you know, such and such, but... How about taking a look down down low? I had lightning toward the Highway 93 direction to the west of Sula Peak, let's say. And I can't see down there. Could you look around in there? Like, yep, sure, we'll do it, you know. Yeah, take a quick Same time. with all of them. They all have us do that. So we concentrate on what they tell us where they had lightning. That's their blind spots. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Because if it's visible, if it's in a place where they can see, they're probably going to find it yeah we got really good lookouts they're really good yeah yeah they're super good experienced folks i mean they they know their craft yeah absolutely yeah. i mean even tell me check in the morning with the, if you, you know if they call in or something and we talk on the phone like the morning weather and then they'll talk about what they've, they've experienced and stuff and it's it's pretty cool to hear yeah so their value their value is gigantic the value of the plane's gigantic too yeah but absolutely. the two work we don't try and scoop one another. I mean, that's, you know, I'm one of them, you know, and they yeah. know that, you know, we've, we've all been done lookout training and done stuff together for years, you know? Yeah. And it's Which like, make- I'm there to help you guys and look for the stuff that you tell me you want me to concentrate on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's what and makes the team so powerful is because you guys don't know each other. So and you're helping each other out instead of, like you said, trying to dig at each other and, you know, no, nah, there's none of that really. Yeah. I know that I know they from time to time, because when I've been on salmon, uh, as a volunteer, there's a couple of times that when I knew the plane was coming, you know, I'd take an extra sharp look at some place and every once in a while I'd I'd find a smoke, you know, before the plane got there. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow, yeah. Yeah. Get your game on that day. But it seemed a lot of the, it. It's it's true. The places they can't see, 
that's where the plane's valuable because over the years there've been I've found a lot of fires in places that they can't see. Yeah. Oh, the door shut. Oh, yeah, must, must have been. Was. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So we we help one another that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really good deal, man. To have that relationship. I don't know. If, I mean, probably most forest have because the, the forest service seems like one big family. But Bitterroot's really good about it, though. We've always. Yeah. I mean, this is they were doing it that way before. I got involved with the program in 96. You know, they, yeah. the plane always checked in with the lookouts. and uh, That's really good. Basically, we just we just kept that relationship going because because it works. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it works really good for sure. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially being in dispatch and kind of seeing it firsthand, you know, like when you go up in the air and then hearing, hearing you coordinate with the lookouts and stuff because, you know, we catch the traffic too. Yeah, so. it's cool. It it's, is. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, because, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be inside just kind of picturing the country as best I can, you know, and kind and of it, w- wishing I was along with you. <laughs> it's fun sometimes, you know, and uh, when a crew is responding to a fire um, and if we're still in the area, we can check – go fly back over that area where their fire is. And there have been times like if there was something in the wilderness just up from the East Fork Trailhead into the Anaconda Pintler Wilderness, you know, I could see I could see the crew vehicles show up there at oh. the trailhead from the plane. Cool. Yeah. And I could say, okay, I can see you guys. You're getting ready to hike. And they, yeah. And I went, okay, just hike straight up the drainage. And when you get to, you know, a curve to the, to the left on the river along the trail look up to about your two o'clock on the right on a bald hill and you should be able to see the fire there oh man yeah that's huge it's like, really cool to get to talk to those folks from the fire or from the ground and there have been lots of times when we've been over a fire where i check in if i know people are on a fire not just me but air patrol will always check in with those folks on the fire it's like yeah, hey, Russ Bazell, let's say, out on yeah. West Fork. Russ, we're about five minutes out from your fire. Is there anything in particular you want us to look at around it? Yeah, would you take a good circle, a couple circles around it, and let us know? We found a few spots out on the main perimeter, and, and just let me know if you see anything. So, okay, we'll do it. You know, we go yeah. out there and circle that area, and sometimes they'll want us to fly and look at a certain area for them or something like that you know yeah so, and that's that's so handy because you i mean especially now we're getting a little thinner on firefighters it feels like so you only got so many boots on the ground so yeah. having some, some eyes in the sky like that is yeah. really helpful and then also for weather too if you're in a hole and you're up there you know you're up there uh flying around you can see if some weather's going to be closing in on like russ oh know? yeah that happens a lot too yeah yeah, we, we can actually fly when there are thunderstorms. It just depends on where they are. Oh. So we'll know before we take the plane off that the storms might be predicted to come in from a certain direction and stuff like that. So we have kind of little, a little checklist between the patrol person and the pilot uh, where we talk about that stuff. You know, everything looks good. There might possibly be storms later in the afternoon in a certain direction, so we'll keep an eye out for that. And depending on what's going on, we we may or may not even go into that area. You know, and I always say to the pilot, no matter what, I'm the observer, but you're the pilot. If you see something you don't like, you tell me. Yeah. You know, don't 
don't be shy about it. And they aren't. Oh, good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Safety first. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you tell me, you know, and sometimes we'll see a cloud front out somewhere where we want to go. And I'll be like, well, that, that area doesn't look very good right now. And the puddle will be, we got plenty to do between here and there. So we'll keep an eye on it. And sometimes, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, the pilot will say, it looks like that, that cloud front has completely moved out of that area. So if you're good with it, I'm good to go there now. Oh, cool. Like Thunderhead. Yeah, but we talk about it, you know, and yeah. there've been times where we've, we've had to actually abort flights because we we were having too many things starting to develop, you know, and it's just silly to have to spend so much time trying to dodge clouds or something, as opposed to being able to do your job looking down at the ground for fires and everything. And, and I, I, and whoever's the aerial observer has the right also to call the flight anytime they want. We did that last summer on one out on West Fork where, yeah, Brad had really wanted us to go out and look at, some of that area around Indian Ridge and we just we just couldn't get there you know I told Megan I said I'm just gonna tell Brett we can't do it and go ahead and head back toward Hamilton now and turn the plane around and uh then called Hamilton told him we were gonna call the flight and head it in yeah so yeah man it's our call depending yeah. on what we see you know I'm not taking any chances and, no and the pilot definitely is not into that sort of thing you know yeah. we do what we can do but if we feel like there's anything at all it is going to compromise safety, then we go home. There's always another day. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. But that's the right mindset to have with that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how, how the Air Patrol stuff's work, and other things will come up about that because I'm still doing it from 96 till now. So Yeah, it's so cool, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty thankful that they're still letting me be involved with that stuff. Yeah, well, so I really like doing it. I think everyone in the force, you know, including me, is pretty happy to have you because you got so much experience, you know, and, and you've been a lookout, you've been a firefighter. You know, and, and, and the cool part, part, yeah, the cool part for me too is that I was a ground pounder for so many years that I know what the crews want to know. If, yeah. I, if I can see something that's going to help them or warn them about or whatever, you know, I'm going to do it because that's that's what I always wanted yeah, to have when I was on a fire. I wanted that information, too. Especially, yeah, just like a little tip on saving you a little bit of a hike. Like, hey, it's it's not too far up to your right, you know, like when you're giving those directions. Like, that's huge. You know, I've been on the ground where a helicopter kind of helped guide me in before. And that's or the, or the I remember plane. one time in the in the two, early 2000s, Wes Glasser and a couple of folks on West Fork were hiking to a fire and they were going to have to they were going up a really steep ridge. And we could see the fire was off that ridge down laterally over in this other drainage and everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I found them. I could see them hiking. I could see their yellow shirts and stuff like that. And I told, I remember calling him and I said, Wes, I know you're not going to believe this, but I can see where you are and you're going to continue up that drainage. And there's going to be one major tree. I think it's Ponderosa that you're going to run right into you can't miss it because it's going to be the only big tree on the ridge right where you're headed. When you get there, turn left and you should be able to see the fire. Oh, man. And he did. Yeah. <laughs> you know? God. Oh, that's so helpful, man. Like, yeah. Dang, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool because I don't know if they would have looked down in there. You know, it's like it's way different from the ground than it is from my perspective and stuff. And it might have been a location that they would have walked right by that tree because the 
the legal was kind of nebulous as to exactly where it was, you know? Oh, yeah. So that helped them walk right to it. Yeah, that's huge, man. Yeah, it was yeah. cool. Because, like, yeah, I mean, you've probably been there, too. Where you hike up an area, and then you can't find it. You know, it stops, stops with smoke. Yeah, you go back down, and then the next day it's come, it's back. You're like, ah. Oh, yeah, really frustrating yeah. stuff can so, be. So then the next year, 98, at uh, West Fork, the major thing that year for me was that three of us uh, got to go to Florida. Florida was having a lot of fires this summer of 98. Oh, really? Yeah, and people from all over the country were down there and we got the opportunity to take Sula's 750 the big engine there but we didn't drive it there we they lowboyed it and a couple of others from one from the Lolo and one from one of the other forests on this big 18 wheeler so we flew down there the three of us and we got there I think two days before the engine got there but it arrived. You that's, know? A, that's the best way to travel. <laughs> you know? It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember what we did. We just mainly staged in this big camp for those first couple of days uh, while we were waiting for the engine to get there. And then when it did, you know, we had it at our disposal and we used it. We were back there two weeks, two and a half weeks, something like that. And yeah. Just it was big, pretty interesting. Big swamp fires or? They were, yeah, some of them were, yeah, it wasn't Everglades. It wasn't right in that neck of the woods. It was up further north in Florida. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, but some of it was swampy and some of it wasn't. Florida's real famous for a lot of that country. If you're not in Everglades National Park or someplace like that, there's roads everywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and all the folks that go down there now and burning details learn that because everything's pretty much just giant blocks of terrain that have roads around them you know and you can access them with vehicles and engines and stuff like that so we never did go on a on a new fire but we we did support and bill burhop came down there while we were there from sula as a strike team leader and he he managed to get us on the division that he was on oh awesome yeah so we got to work with him and stuff and that makes a big difference joni who was on our crew that year at at, uh, at Sula? She's the only person I know that's got to cut down a coconut palm oh, with really? a chainsaw. Yeah, same man. I don't think I've met anybody who has. <laughs> I've got a picture of her standing on the stump afterwards. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's cool. pretty cool. It's pretty unique. At least for those of us from out here, we don't get that opportunity hardly ever. No, yeah, ever. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's done it. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that that was pretty cool. Really cool. And so then, then it moved on, you know, at the end of that season. Um, and when I went back to Sula, those three years, there weren't a lot of occasions, but every once in a while, um, if the lookout at it of the day offers something, I'd get to go up to Sula Peak and spend the day. Oh, cool. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just kind of get my hand back into it for the day and stuff like that. Yeah. Because I'd done it before. So that was cool. That was really cool. Yeah. And then in, in 99, I went to here to Hamilton to dispatch for the summer. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And where was the it, dispatch center then? It was here, but it was oh, yeah. across the hall there where the food area is now. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. where it was then. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It was a small, much smaller room than the one you guys have now. Yeah. Yeah. I know what tech were you talking That's where it was. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was interesting because that was the first time I'd been in, 
inside other than, you know, we'd all, we'd all kind of take turns. This, this was just a couple of years after Central Dispatch started. That kind of was a budding idea in 95 and 96, and I think 97 was probably about the first time that it went into full force because in, in all those years past, all the, all the districts basically did their own dispatching. Yeah, like you were talking before about Crockett being there in Sula, right? Yeah, Crockett, they had a dispatcher. Each one had a dispatcher, and, Batcher, and Crockett was it at Sula. Yeah. And so all the other districts would listen on the radio frequencies, and if, if, if the lookouts on Sula, let's say, were reporting lightning strikes and stuff like that, I remember hearing this stuff. You'd get a call from Darby and West Fork's dispatchers on the radio like, Darby, we've got we've got eight people available if you need them, and Westford could call and say we've got fourteen available if you need them and stuff like that, yeah. and they'd all inter talk with one another about that. Cool. And so if you started picking up fires on your district and it looked like there was going to be needed more help than let's say the number of firemen we had at Sula available. The dispatcher just tell West Fork, let's say, yes, yeah, send six of your people over here right now, you know. Oh, cool. And that's how they do it. And basically, the only thing Hamilton really did was if fires looked like they were going to get big, the districts would let Hamilton know, and then Hamilton would order outside resources. Oh, Hot shot crews, you know more engines, more whatever from other places. Yeah. But the district basically just took care of it themselves. Oh, that's kind of cool. So nobody really liked it when the central dispatch concept came. I kind of heard that. It, that it was... came from California because they were the oh. ones, one of the places that used it a lot, you know, and a new FMO on one of the districts was from down there and was really pushing that stuff. But the folks here were like, we don't want to do that. Yeah, but we ended up doing it because it became the national standard, right? Yeah, standard to do it and everything. Yeah, and now it's no big deal. But I remember a lot of people were really upset about it, and you know, didn't like it and everything. Yeah, even a few years ago, I remember hearing folks talk about like West Fork, um, still kind of operating a little bit on that, and it seemed to make more sense because of the like the no cell phone coverage. And yeah, and even the radio coverage was kind of rough, so it's just easier to check into West Fork versus back in Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. So it was a new deal for me being inside. I yeah. I I liked doing dispatch from a district office, and I liked talking to people from fires. You know, when I reached the point where I could be a duty officer because. I was a strike team leader qualified in division and IC type three and safety officer and stuff like that. I could spell whoever Doug or whoever was a dispatcher or was, excuse me, was the FMO or AFMO. If they needed to take a day off or something, you know, I could be the one that would be on the radio, stay in the office and be on the radio, Yeah, which was cool. Yeah, I liked doing that, but I really didn't like it because being in Hamilton that year and it was, it was sort of my idea, but being in Hamilton that year, I discovered that being a dispatcher wasn't really what I wanted to do because, no. man, no. when I'd be talking to people out on the fires, you oh, know. just happened? The old GoPro just died. Hold on one second. Pause on the sucker. All righty. All right. Back in from a pee break. So anyway, we were talking about my dispatch experience in 99, and yeah, it just wasn't my cup of tea because um, yeah. I, I really missed being out in the field, I found, and... 
you know, talking to folks out there is like, I want to be there too. You know, I, I want to be there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But the cool part, Nancy Gibson was the dispatcher then, and I knew her really well. She'd worked at Stevensville for a number of years way back, and she'd been around for a long time. She was a really good person. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I was already, you know, like I said, division trainee but strike team qualified at that point in time and so she got me a a cool fire assignment over um over toward big timber oh yeah yeah i was only over there for five or six days but my old hotshot crew suit bill miller he was over there as a safety officer just by coincidence oh that's cool so yeah we got to work together and i got to work with a couple of cheyenne crews that were there that was pretty cool yeah getting to hang out with them and then later in the summer the klamath started burning big time like it's hard to believe it after 87 that there was anything left to burn up there but there is i guess yeah so she got me another gig to go down there and i was down there about 18 days or something like that and that was that was really cool i i was on a division that was pretty much way out in the middle of nowhere with no roads or anything like that and camped out with these crews and got resupplied by helicopters and stuff like that and it's a beautiful country out there too worked with some really good folks you know and they were Type one teams were rotating in and out of those different fires every every two or three weeks, you know, and so the fire the fire that I was on was really big, and so the part of it that was closest to where the base camp was, they didn't really need the base camp to be there anymore because the fire had progressed in quite a few miles in another direction. So the crew that I was a strike team leader for, it was a Latino crew cool folks yeah they and i got selected to go to this location where the new camp was going to be set up but the team wasn't supposed to show up until like the next day or something so we went and we found it but there really wasn't anything we could do because you know we needed the the logistics folks from the team to decide where they wanted to put the tents and all that stuff yeah so this was really fun. So when we got there, we had passed a small market on the way there, about 20 minutes away from where the fire was. Mm-hmm. And we had stopped there. Some folks wanted cigarettes or something. I don't remember. Yeah. But we got to the fire and at, or to the campsite. And below it was this huge farm, tomatoes, like jillions of tomatoes and stuff. And so we decided to walk around and just kind of take a look at the area and see if we could get an idea where they might think they were going to put the camp. And one of the guys, the foreman down in the field is like, Hey, what's up? You know, it's like, Oh, we're going to have a big fire camp here and stuff. So we just kind of taking a look around and he goes, do you want any tomatoes? And I went, I don't know, maybe, you yeah. know, and he said the team might want some cause they're going to have a catering service and these stuff. And he said, no, we really appreciate you guys being here and stuff. And, We'll give you anything they want. I mean, they had like acres and acres of tomato plants. Oh, wow. And they were starting to harvest them. So, cool. So, you know, we walked back up and the foreman of the Latino crew was like, hey, so it doesn't look like we have much to do the rest of this afternoon, right? And I went, no. And he goes, so we noticed that back at that store, they have a pretty good meat counter in there and stuff. And we would like to make 
homemade salsa and, you know, tacos and stuff like that. Do you think if we took up a collection among ourselves that you could go back with us and we could get that stuff? And we did. Oh, cool. So that afternoon, evening, they made the most incredible Mexican feast. Oh, my God. It was so good. Oh, I bet, man. Those little yeah. treats are so good on fire. They you know? made their own salsa. They they carry their own spices around with them when oh, they're traveling and really? stuff like that. You know. And yeah. So when it got time to eat, they said... Now, we made you some salsa that isn't as strong as ours just in case. And I went, no, I want to try yours, you know. Yeah. Boy, it was really hot, but it was good. Oh, I bet. I'd need the wimpy stuff. Oh, That's God. smart, traveling all the spices. I know a lot of the jumpers that'll travel yeah, they, all they like, just, seasoning every, and stuff. They travel all over. They're a type 2 crew, you know, and so they travel all over for fires, but they always took their own spices, you know, with them and stuff like that. Yeah, that's smart, man. So it was awesome. So the ne- we camped there. We spent the night there. And the next morning, we got a call that the, the team was – uh, in it at an in briefing, you know, at the old site, and that a couple of people were on their way to where we were to start figuring out where they were going to put stuff. So, type one team. Yeah, yeah. So, this vehicle shows up, and who gets out of it but Ruth Lewis, Brett's mom? Oh, no way. Yeah. 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 She did logistics stuff. I know. I, she I think did, it was did fire stuff. That's cool. Yeah. She worked here at the SO for a really long time. Really? Yeah. Man, so, that's and, cool. and she knew me. So, it's like, Ruth, Reen, you know, and yeah. like, oh, this is great, you know. And I said, yeah, we're here to help you guys get and start getting stuff set up. So we helped do that. Man, that was yeah. really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, it was fun running into her and everything there too. Yeah, that's yeah. the hard thing about like getting out of fire is that it's like uh, still, even though it's giant, it's still like us feels like a small family. It's still, you know? lots of time we'd we'd run into people that we knew. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, or man. Especially me from the Hotshot crew going all over the place. I mean, we'd run into people after that everywhere that had been on other crews, Lolo and wherever around here that were doing other stuff, you know, and you'd you'd run into these folks. It was really neat. Yeah, it makes it so cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was the neatest thing. Yeah. So those were the two highlights for me of that year. And then two thousand, I got to go do prevention on Stevensville. Big year two thousand. I didn't prevent much in two thousand, I'll tell you. <laughs> no one could. I don't think that was a rough year. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I got to go up there was because Bruce Blonick was the prevention tech up there. And I, I think I mentioned Bruce before. He was on Bitterroot IR crew number one in 1963. Oh, really? So he'd been around for a long time. He started out at Magruder in 61 Whoa. when he graduated from high school and worked out there while he was going to college. That's... Yeah, and was on the first, the, ver- the first, I think the first and second Bitterroot IR crews, 63 and 64. Man, that's cool. Yeah. And Magruder was just a workstation. I think we covered this, but I can't remember. Which? Magruder was just a, a workstation at that point, or was it still a ranger district? When or? he started, it was a full-fledged range. It was the 5th Bitterroot District. Fifth, oh, yeah, that Magruder is a, was a, 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 its own district out there in that Solway country. Man, I wish I could have seen that. I would have loved to work out yeah. there, man. And he was there, you know, actually when William Boggs started in 71 on Salmon, it, West Fork didn't absorb Magruder into the West Fork District until... I think it was 70, 71, 2, 3, maybe 74, oh, somewhere really? in there. Oh, wow. So Magruder was a full-fledged entity. Not that long ago. Up till then, yeah. 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 They had a cookhouse and, you know, all this 
cool stuff and everything. A little slice of There's a lot there of historic, is. not a lot, but the Westwork got some historic photos of where, what all the buildings, when all the buildings were there. was a lot more stuff. Have you ever been there? Yeah, I've been there uh, okay. one time a long time ago. But well, there was a lot more stuff back in the day than is there now. Yeah, I bet that yeah. bridge, even just the bridge going there is amazing. That little like, like rock bridge. The stone bridge. Stone bridge, yep. Yeah. yeah. It's my favorite bridge in the world. Yeah, I think mine too, and I've it only is. been there once. It's so it's pretty. Be- it's a beauty, yeah. So anyway, Bruce um, had worked at Magruder and was on the first 2IR cruise. And then when he graduated from college, he wanted to be a teacher, but he graduated from college and he joined the Marine Corps and he became a Phantom jet pilot in Vietnam. Oh, whoa. Yeah, he did. uh, Actually, Walt Smith is pretty sure that Bruce was there at about the time that the Phantoms were dropping napalm for them up about up a bike case on so bruce might have been one of those guys and he did some flights accompanying bombers up to haiphong and in north vietnam oh wow bombing runs and stuff like that yeah he was he was a really interesting guy i bet bet he had some stories but he'd been around and he was a you know had quals and was a, a good firefighter and overhead type guy and so that season, Bruce Windhorst was the FMO up there in 2000. He'd, he'd started as a temporary at West Fork and worked his way up. Yeah. And uh, they didn't have an AFMO, so Bruce got a temporary appointment as the AFMO for that summer. Oh. And so his prevention job became open for the season. So I got to go up there. And like I said, I ended up not really preventing much of anything but the interesting thing was is that stevensville didn't have that many fires that summer um well it had blodgett later but um yeah that season started dry 2000 did way early sula had a fire somewhere way up the east fork that a lightning strike started a fire there was snow on the ground and exposed grass and stuff and trees and everything were burning. Ooh. So it was this was like really early in the spring. And so we were all like, oh, man, what's going to happen next, you know? Yeah, that's a bad start. And it just kept getting drier and drier. And then in early summer, I was already up at Stevensville. In early summer, uh, down on the Salmon, that Clear Creek fire started on the south side of the river and burned for the rest of the summer. It was huge. There were people all over down there over the summer. Yeah. And West Fork had uh, uh, the Little Blue Joint fire, which Bearcon was the one that found originally, and it got, you know, a few thousand acres big. And so those were kind of like a fairly early July and stuff like that, you know, and this this was going on, and it's like, man, what's going to happen next? Yeah, bad And, you deal. know, we were, we were doing a lot of patrolling on Stevensville. We had a couple of small fires, but nothing big. And by mid-July, all the underbrush was taking on fall colors. By mid-July? Yeah, because it was all drought-stressed, so you know, oh. and it was it was— it was dying essentially, yeah. and it was. We kept looking. We drive all these drainages, and like, man, this is. I've never seen this in the whole time I've lived here. Anything like this, you know? Yeah. So, we knew we figured something was going to happen. So one of my prevention jobs when they closed the whole forest, um, before all the fires started, they closed basically closed the forest. No hiking, no going up any of the roads to trailheads, anything like that. So, all of the districts like. 
barricaded off all the roads that went to trailheads and stuff like that. So one of my jobs on Sula was to, or on uh, Stevensville, I mean, you couldn't do them all in one day because there were so many. I'd usually always take another crew member with me, and we'd decide that we're going to drive down to Blodgett, which is where Darby and the center of the Blodgett Creek is where Darby and Sula change. Darby and Steve, yeah. Or yeah. Steve, yeah, yeah, to yeah. one or the other. Yeah, and we'd, we'd go through the barricades and then put the barricades back and then drive to the trailhead and make sure there was nobody in there come back out put the barricade back go to the next drainage and just you know it took a couple of days to do them all and then you'd start over and do it again and make sure there's nobody up in there keep people safe huh yeah so then on july 31st um very hot dry high hanes type day you know stuff didn't look good and thunderstorms were predicted and early afternoon west fork started getting lightning and just by coincidence, the Blodgett fire started while all the other fires, lightning fires, were starting out on West Fork. It was from, uh, we found a homeless person's campfire later. Oh, no. But, yeah, but I mean, it's just weird. That it, the coincidence was that this happened at the same time that all this stuff was happening out on West Fork. Yeah. Boggs was up on Salmon that day as the volunteer, and he was there when all the big blast started. And he and Sita, who had also done a lot of lookout stuff when was on, I think she was on Deer Mountain that summer. Yeah, and Linda Reiki was on Sula Peak, old Sula Peak, the the L4. Yeah. And they were reporting the same thing Boggs saw. A lot of the strikes were forked, and both forks were starting fires. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's gnarly. Yeah. So within probably an hour and a half there were like 40 some fires going and the weather tracked across Sula and Darby but not a single lightning strike came onto Stevensville from that big blast of what ended up being probably 50 or more fires Jeez. yeah lucky that Stevensville didn't get Ooh. any you know and I was I was doing like the one horse drainage one of the farthest drainages north on Stevensville you know doing those patrols and going behind the gates and to the trailheads and so i got a call that the fire had started in blodgett and was i available and i said yeah i am but i'm i'm up at the head of one horse creek you know the trailhead and it's take me a long time to get down okay forget it don't do that just go back to the station because you and john walter shrub we're going to be the only ones that are there and need somebody to you guys demand the radio in case something happens or whatever you know yeah and everybody was gone the whole crew went down to blodgett canyon all the rest of them not by the whole crew i mean there were only about probably eight people something like that oh but they all went down to blodgett so shrub and i monitored the radio the whole rest of the afternoon and until probably 10 or 11 at night and just listen to all this traffic on the radio jim leverton was flying air patrol and you could hear him you know down over sula andrews creek across from the station that there was a fire up near the head of the creek that you know was already at 30 acres or something like that and we could hear um uh crews west or sula people responding to go up there and 
we could hear all this on the radio, clear as a bell. And whoever was driving the engine was saying, calling back to, to Sula to say, so you said that fire's way up at the head of the drainage? And he was, that's the report. That's what Air Patrol said. And he said, we're, we're by a fire right now that's really ripping. And Burhop said, don't go above the fire. You can't go above where you are because this is this is a crazy situation and you're going to be in dire trouble if you go up there. So yeah. is there anything you can do with this one? And it's like, stand by, you know, and they tried, but they couldn't. Because that stuff just, it was so dry. Everything just went nuts. Not bad, man. We were just like on the radio, like, oh my God, you know, listening to all this stuff going on and everything. That'd be wild. Yeah. So, you know, I live three miles south of Darby, so... I went home that night, probably around 11 p.m., and the crew was on the fire, and the forest FMO, Jack Kirkendall, had gone out there to to see if he could help them at all, and they had a sky crane that was stationed here in the valley. Well, suddenly there, there were like almost zero, obviously, air resources for all of these fires that had started within two hours of one another, you know? And so the bitter, it was just like, Dispatch was pandemonium, I found out later. I mean, it's just like trying to order resources. And there were tons of big fires all over the Northwest. And it was tough finding resources. Yeah, there's nothing available at all. Everything's taken up All the hotshot crews were busy. You know, everybody was just, it was just nuts. That had to be gnarly. Yeah, yeah. So that that next morning, the 30th, I was driving from my place to Stevensville. I had to be in, I had to come in by... 6 30 in the morning they wanted me in there early and bruce was back windhorse was back and as i came um on the east side highway looking toward blodgett i could see i couldn't see the fire very well the night before when i went home actually i don't even remember looking for it because it was late and i was really tired yeah. and i was focusing on the fact that the east side highway has tons of deer at night and yeah so i was basically just looking at the road but Smart. i could look up at blodgett and see that the fire was above the cliff on the flat to the north of the cliffs there. And it looked like it was, it was hard to guess, but it was like maybe 15 acres established up there, you know, and that sea of timber on that whole ridge, it's all burned off now. Yeah. And so when I got up there, I told Buster that, and he said, well, that's kind of too bad to hear because you and I are going to drive back down there right now and you're going to take over as the icy type three of this fire. Oh, right. Like, oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, thanks. So, yeah, thanks, pal. You know, <laughs> yeah. We drove down there and when we drove into the canyon, you know, where the campground is, there's all those big cliffs to the north and there's just fire everywhere, everywhere in those cliffs and stuff like that. And there you could see rocks and pieces of trees falling off from the stuff burning on the top smashing against the cliffs throwing sparks and crap everywhere you know and i remember turning to him in the vehicle while we're looking at all this out the window and i went so what is it i'm gonna do here <laughs> you know? yeah because i don't see what i'm gonna do here you know yeah. and he goes i don't know let's go find the crew and take a look well the crew the night before the crew they couldn't get close to the cliff, but they were able to contain the original part of the fire. It was about a, two acres down below the cliffs and still on the north side of Blodgett Creek. Oh. They were able to contain it because nice. they had a Mark Three there and stuff. But the fire now was 
progressing west into the wilderness. And so the stuff up on the top would break off and fall down and it had ladder back. It was amazing. These little ledges and these 200 foot high cliffs had pine needles on them. And somehow the wind had get those embers into those needles and it had work its way all the way back up, torch more stuff on top, fall things down and it just keep moving west into the wilderness, which was okay. Yeah. Because as long as it didn't go in the other direction, I mean, that was the only thing we could hope for is that it would keep doing that. Stay in the canyon, yeah. So Bruce said, yeah, just try and... My main concern to you is that if you can, we want to keep the fire on the north side of Blodgett Creek so it doesn't run up the other side and impact those homes that are in the lower part of the Canyon Creek drainage. Okay, that's what we'll do, you know. So it was our crew of about eight people and a state engine from Helena, which had a really good Skookum supervisor guy with them. And they were the only ones there. You know, the rurals had been called to go other places to help down in Darby and stuff. And so that was it. It was me and eight people plus four people, and that was it. So... We couldn't get close to the cliff, and so the only thing I could think of to do was that I had the crew boss of that engine, who was really good. I had him just patrol on the on the south side of the creek and watch the fire as it was progressing into the wilderness, and just that his job was to just patrol and keep an eye on it and let me know if it looked like it was getting close to the creek and that it was going to blow across to the south side. That was all he was supposed to do, and that's what he did. And I checked in with him. And the bad part was it turned out that they had a sky crane and a retardant ship out of Missoula that were available. And so they weren't going to have them available when we got down there around 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever until we called to check, and it was like, the sky crane can't fly till like ten thirty, and it's like, crap, that's too late. I mean, we need it, we need it now. Yeah. But we couldn't get it, you know. And we got the retardant ship, and it came down, and I didn't have to do anything in the canyon. That wouldn't have done any good. Yeah. Just had him like work on that part that was up in the flat up above the cliffs, you know. Yeah. And try and keep it in check, and uh, and so I couldn't. I couldn't see that area properly from in the canyon where the crew was. And luckily for me, there were two people on the Stevensville crew that year who had been on the hotshot crew with me, Joni and Ruth, and they were both really good hands. And so I found, I, I found a spot on that approach road before you turn around the big corner and head into Blodgett Canyon where I could look up and I could see all that stuff above the cliffs. You know, and so I told those guys, Joni and Ruth, that I'm going to check in with you guys like every 15 minutes or sooner if you got something you need to tell me. But I need to be out there where I can see what's going on with those ships because I can't from in here. Yeah. And so it worked out good. The crew was super tired. I mean, they'd been up since the morning before, you know, and they hadn't slept at all out that night. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. And... The guy from the Stevensville crew who, who was in charge that morning, he called Stevensville when I was first got there and checked in. And he says, hey, could you call dispatch and see if they could get us 
a hot shot crew or two? And I went, I can tell you right now what the answer is going to be, but yeah, I'll call him and I'll call you right back. And I called and Nancy just kind of laughed at me and was <laughs> yeah. like, you'll be lucky if you get a type 10 crew, you know, yeah. which there is no such thing. No, but yeah. She said, you'd be lucky if you get anything, but we'll put in a request and see what we can get. And so I called him back and told him, it's like, no dice, you're it. You're it. And I'm coming down, you know, and yeah, do what you can. So, but they, they were super tired. You could tell, I mean, there was, and I didn't want to get them to do anything too crazy because if that fire jumped across the Creek, we were going to probably have to try and, catch it you know if we could yeah. and i didn't want them to just be totally exhausted and everything yeah so we got a call that maybe just maybe we were going to get a type 2 crew sometime in the afternoon time unknown whether they were really going to come or not unknown yeah. but they'll have to check in at dispatch so if they are coming we'll let you know later so the crew just basically monitored and i watched what was going on and then the sky crane got active but they couldn't put that thing out up there. It was just, it was so freaking dry. Oh, just keep it, coming they, back on them? It just would come back when they'd oh. leave to get more water and or retardant in Missoula. And there was an air attack guy up, and he was he was kind of kind of a jerk, actually, because mm -hmm. he, kept, he kept calling me and saying, you know, you can't just drop retardant and water on that. you got to have people up there, you know. That's how retardant works. Retardant drops and then blah, 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 blah. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I know. I know all of this. You yeah, know? you're not telling me you don't know. you got to have people so that have people I, I there. I said to him, listen, man, I don't have, we don't have any resources. And I've got, I've got 12 people down here who have been here all night we're trying to hang on to this thing so it can't move south. And so there isn't going to be anybody going up there. So you just keep dropping the retardant in the water until I tell you to stop. And he hassled me again later, and I told him the same thing. And I, they did bring me a, a vehicle and a cell phone from the, the dispatch office. And I called up Kirkendall, the forest FMO, and I said, you need to get this guy on my back, off my back because I'm tired of telling him that I don't have people to send up there. And I want him to just keep dropping retardant in water because that's what you guys have told me yeah, you want to do. I would have given an invite goes, to come. Uh, I'll take care of it. And yeah. he never bothered me again. Oh, good. I was going to say, man, he's got an armchair quarterback from yeah. the sky. I'd have him come pound some line in for me if he uh, thought he could yeah. do it, you know. But that morning's uh, weather, fire weather report called for, I think it was a Haynes of five or six again, and that there was a, they had pretty strong confidence that sometime in, in the mid-afternoon, there was going to be a dry coal front from west to east in in uh, on the Bitterroot coming across the valley. Mm -hmm. So we had that in the back of our minds, too, you know. And about the Type 2 crew showed up, and I basically just kind of turned them over to our to Joni and Ruth and to that guy from the the engine that was there. And just just use these folks, you know. I gave him a briefing and stuff, and I said it's it's kind of an unusual deal because we don't have enough people, and there's a potential coal front coming in. So I'm just going to let these guys use you where they can, you know. And I went back out to my spot, and sure enough, man, about four o'clock in the afternoon, the wind started increasing, and that fire up on top of that cliff just instantly got freaking huge oh, and started man. heading downhill in the Hamilton direction. Oh, no. So, you know, I 
it takes me longer to to tell it than it did my thought process, of course, because of having friends and Don Mackey who died at South Canyon from a fire that came alive in a wind across the drainage from where they were. And I thought, what would Walt Smith do right now? What would Walt do? I know what Walt would do. He'd get these people out of here. And so I called him. I called our folks and the engine guy and the crew boss of that Type 2 crew. And I said, this is not an emergency, but there's an, there's a fire behavior emerging to the north of you up on the cliff. And it's not safe for us to be in there. So I'm telling you right now, it's not an emergency, but I want you all to go to your vehicles because I'm going to drive in there and meet up with you and we're coming out. And so they all verified. And so I did. I drive in and met them. And there were a couple of people who looked pretty nervous and stuff, but they couldn't see what was going on. They couldn't see it at all from down in the canyon. Yeah, You couldn't see this column at all. Oh, and so I let them out and I, I had been trying to call dispatch on both the cell phone and the radio. Nobody, nobody responded. Oh, no. Nobody would respond at all. Must have been busy. I found out later that they were just, they were absolutely overwhelmed and they don't even remember hearing me call in. Whoa. So I thought, well, it's my decision, you know, that we're going to, we're going to pull out of here. But safety first. There, we did have a, a law enforcement officer out there at the where the road junction came in to stop people from driving in there oh good yeah so i stopped and talked to him and told him we're gonna we're gonna go out just a little ways and we're just gonna stage but your job now is to just not let anybody go up toward the trailhead at all yeah, not safe. they can go into where the houses are on the canyon creek side but nobody nobody goes into blodgett canyon and he verified that so just by coincidence, where I parked was right between Don Mackey's parents' home and uh, the guy who was the forest wildlife biologist then. Oh, really? Yeah. And and we got out there and got out of the vehicle, and all of those folks from my crew looked up at that column, and they were like, oh, my God, you know. It was right above us. <laughs> you weren't kidding. Yeah. No, I wasn't kidding. I mean, and the angle it was at, it wasn't going to get you guys, but my fear was that as it ran down down to the east, it could hook around and come up into Blodgett Canyon while we're in there, and I'm, I'm not letting that happen. No, that could be bad news there. So we sat out there. I kept trying to call dispatch for two, two hours. I could, nobody... Nobody ever answered me. Oh, no. And finally, Bruce Windhorse called me on the cell phone, and I had checked it, left him a message earlier to what we had done, and we're, we're here, but we're out of the canyon. Yeah. So he finally called me about 7 p.m., you know, and said, you guys, might as well, you guys might as well just come all the way back to Stevensville because they've ordered a Type 1 team, and, you know, our part of this is done. <laughs> you know? Yeah, come get some rest and food. <laughs> yeah. And- Man. So we came back in, and then the next day, Joni and I got sent back in there, just the two of us, because the St. Joe hotshots were ordered, and they were going to show up sometime, nobody knew when, but just to kind of keep an eye on things and make sure that all we did was patrol and make sure that it still didn't try and go south and yeah. just kind of monitor. And then when the St. Joe came, kind of showed them what was going on, and then a plan came together that that I didn't really have a part of at all that they were going to dig line down around the canyon 
in case they had to burn out that section and stuff. Oh, gotcha. So we finally got to leave about, I don't know, 8 or 9 p.m. or something like that. Jeez. It was crazy. It's a long day. Yeah, there were a lot of lot of long days. But that was basically our part of the, of the big fire siege because we just patrolled and stuff, you know. After that, we, yeah. we there was no lightning because the weather pattern was just hot and freaking dry and windy and stuff for days, you know. Gotcha, yeah. But toward the end of that week, so so let's see, the fire started on the 31st. The blow-up was the 1st. We went, Joni and I went back the 2nd. And so that Saturday, I believe, was the 5th. And... Dispatch wanted an air patrol flight, right? So the whole forest is on fire, basically, except for Stevensville, and, well, Blodgett Canyon. Yeah. But the whole rest of the forest is just on fire. Oh, yeah. So they want this flight. So hang on a second. Oh, yeah, yeah, take your time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you guys something real quick because this is, this is one of my five journals from 2000. Five from 2000, yeah. And so on that day, it was Saturday, the 5th of August. I'm going to read this to you because I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, and by coincidence, August 5th was the anniversary of the Mangulch fire in 49. Oh, man. Yeah. August 5th. Yeah. So, anyway, um, let's see. So, I didn't write this until I wrote a little bit at 11 that they wanted an air patrol flight. And I didn't write the rest of it until 1905. So 7.05 that night when I was back at Stevensville, I caught this up before we got to go home and stuff. Yeah. So I put, cool day. I was up at 04.45, really smoky out once again with strong smoke spell, smell. Couldn't even see the fires up near Deer Mountain or anywhere due to the thick smoke. I could only see bits of Blodgett Canyon on the drive north. There was actually some dew on my car this morning, but that didn't mean anything. No. Uh, let's see. And so I didn't find out I was going to fly until I was at Stevensville. And so uh, they told me at Stevensville at 9 that dispatcher requested me to fly later on. So I left Stevensville for Hamilton at about 9.45 with a quick stop at Victor Post Office to drop something off. Um, and then went to dispatch to check what they wanted me to look at. The map, back then, the map they had had these blinky lights for the fires, for each fire. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. The whole thing was covered with them. <laughs> Sula, Darby, and West Fork were pretty much completely covered with these little oh, lights, lights and yeah. stuff. So, okay, well, it sounds like you want me to look at everything that I can get to, you know? Yeah. So... We're using these old maps, right, too, which made it a little harder. Plus, there was a lot of areas with smoke that you couldn't fly into. Yeah. And so, uh, let's see, the map had all these blinky lights representing different fires. There was a huge temporary flight restriction, TFR, for all of Sula, all of Sula, and some of the adjacent areas. So, we couldn't even, we weren't even really supposed to go on to Sula. Yeah. So, got uh, to the airport at 11. And the plane wasn't there, so the plane finally came, and we took off at 12.04. And then I had written, what an extraordinary adventure. The Bitterroot fires are beyond belief. 
so many, so big, so everywhere, two exclamation points. It was just overwhelming by the scope of what we had going on. We were asked to check first on a fire across from Scalcoho Falls called the Falls Fire. We did, and we found a new spot on it. So let dispatch know, gave a size up to somebody from a crew that was going to go out there and check it out. Uh, let's see. And then um, we, we were on the west side. We went back over to the west side of the valley and checked for smokes in Sweeney Creek, Bass Creek, and Kootenai Creek because people had thought they saw smoke up there, civilians. It was drift smoke from Blodgett is what say. it turned out being, was drift smoke from Blodgett. Yeah, it settles at night, right? And yep, and then it rose back out. Yep. So we, we never did find anything up there. And then I had, I had written again that looking out toward the southeast, east, and southwest and stuff, there was just so much fire and everything. Um, and I put, I was totally blown away by the scope of what I was seeing. I knew we had a lot going, but the numbers of fires visible was just mind boggling. It's totally incredible. How could there be this much and over such a wide, wide area? Most of the fires were tough looking and had lots of spots too. Nobody has ever seen anything like on, like this on the Bitterroot in my knowledge that I'd ever heard of. Yeah. And so. Or since. And said, what are we going to do after five full days? Most of them with fires, most of these fires are still totally unstaffed because they were too dangerous and too, still too few people, you know, resources were here. Yeah. Yeah. So I checked on a fire up behind uh, Saddle Mountain that a uh, Job Corps crew with Mike Pepion, who'd been a jumper in Missoula for a long time, and a guy named Mike Gilbert, who I'd known for a long time. Yeah. They had a crew out there, and they wanted me to come take a look and see what the big picture was and what I thought they might be able to do. So I found them, and it was like, I don't think you guys are going to do anything because that fire is starting to try and make a horseshoe around you. So they pulled out. They, they couldn't do it. Yeah. So Dangerous. then we checked out the West Fork fires next. We went out to a fire near Pickett Mountain, near Corner Creek, and on to the boiling Hamilton fire out behind Salmon Mountain and fires south of Spot Mountain. We checked in with Sarah Doring. Oh, yeah. Saren yeah. was out there with the jumper crew in Running Creek, which is way out in that country. Yeah. And we checked in with her just to see how things were going with her. And then we looked for some more fires out in there. And then when we came back toward the main valley, we came back in kind of north of Lake Como or around that area. Gotcha. And I had written in the afternoon after 1500 when we were coming back in, most of the Sula and Darby fires really started cooking and had, had big cumulus caps on the columns and stuff. Phenomenal stuff. I mean, it was crazy. That was crazy. It was crazy. And there was, like I say, there were just no people available. They couldn't IM. They were so big that, you yeah. know, Smoke Chaser, two or three people weren't going to do anything. And some gnarly country, too. All that West Fork stuff. Holy yeah. cow. And even the backcountry in Darby Sula was just like, it was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I put my last entry for that day was how incredible it was to see how see the huge number of fires and how big they are, how amazing they are. And 
This mass of Bitterroot fires is probably the capstone event of our careers, locally anyway. Yeah, yeah, you, you still know? hear about it. You still see the scar, you know? Yeah, yeah, so... So that was that was crazy stuff, you know, and like I say, one of our guys went back in to retrieve our Mark III pump because there was no need for it to be in Blodgett anymore, and he stopped at the headquarters for the Type 1 team. This was just right about the third day or so, and to tell them that the fire was making, moving slowly, but was making a move south toward Blodgett Creek Ooh, and that he yeah. felt it was probably going to jump across. Ron was just a fire crew member on the crew. He wasn't an overhead or anything that, and they just like basically ignored him. Like, yeah, him. yeah, you know. Well, it did. It jumped across the creek. Oh, no. And then there was this huge battle to try and keep it from burning up Canyon Creek. They used a lot of sky cranes. And then over that week after that, you know, um, it burned to Mill Creek and crossed Mill Creek, burned out that whole face and came out of Pinesdale and burned a bunch of homes and stuff like that. Oh, really? Yeah. Man. And by then there were some resources and stuff and it it made a run up toward Sheepman Creek. Sheepman Creek's interesting because it starts at a much higher elevation than all the rest of the Bitterroot Canyons on the west side. It starts way up high. Yeah. And the ridge... On the south side of it, they used sky cranes to just bombard the upper part of that top part of that ridge and the part on the on the south side of it to stop the spread of the spot, the fire. Yeah, and they did that all day long for two or three days. They did. They oh, stopped it. That's awesome. There was a big investigation later about why was you know a helicopter that cost like. God knows how many thousands of dollars per hour was being used to do something, why they were being used to do something like that. And the response here from the forest was, well, if we didn't try it, if we don't try it, this fire is probably going to run all the way to Missoula and burn the whole west side all the way. Yeah, absolutely. Especially you know? in those dry conditions and the wind. And it probably would have, too. Yeah, it would have jumped Highway 12 and just kept rolling. Yeah, but they know? stopped it. They stopped it with the sky cranes. I mean, it worked. That's awesome. Yeah. Man, that'd be a show. Yeah. Since sky cranes just pound it like that, you it was, know? It was pretty interesting to watch, yeah. 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 And you can't get any bodies out in front of something like that, you know? So It was crazy. Yeah. And so then, you know, the the rest of the summer, you know, as fires just kept getting bigger for quite a while. And then finally, there was a... We had to evacuate Willow. Fire wasn't close, but it had jumped Scalcaho. And Deb that was up there, we had to bring her down oh, just you. just to, you know, not not have to worry about her being there. Or cut off or anything. Did but you... we didn't have the we didn't have the wrap materials to do ask. anything. That's what I was gonna ask you. Yeah. So so the so to backtrack just slightly, the day after the air patrol flight me and one of the other folks were doing my rounds. We were on the east side of the valley checking the, the closed-off gates and stuff. And late in the afternoon, early evening, 6, 7 o'clock, we looked down in the direction of Darby and looked like on, down beyond Darby, there was this gigantic cumulus column, just gigantic. And it was like, holy crap, something bad is happening down there. Ooh. You know? Yeah. Little did we know that there was another equally, that one was on Darby, and there was an equally big one of about the same size on Sula, and it was doing the same thing. And that's the one that 
jumped across the East Fork Canyon and spotted behind the Sula Ranger Station. So Burhop and the folks that were at the station, plus some auxiliary forces that were there, burned out behind the ranger station oh wow to keep it from burning up sula could you imagine being there for that yeah Holy cow, and, the, and that was the day that um one of the other fires burned up sula peak oh that same day yeah oh, and it was already wrapped it had been wrapped but a few days earlier but um the guesses were pretty sure that it was one of the canyons leading up towards Sula Peak that you drive past when you take the road up to the lookout. Yeah, yeah. That it had just funneled up this narrow canyon, created a ton of wind, and, you know, got underneath the wrap, and, oh. and it was gone. Yeah, like a blowtorch probably, too. Yeah, blowtorched it and stuff. And About a week later, I got to drive up there after the, the fire wasn't doing anything in that area and to look at it, and, you know, everything... From all the thing from the everything from the L four had fallen into the base. It had fallen inward, and just blowtorched the whole inside. Oh. The storage batteries and stuff and different things in there that were made of metal. There were big pools of metal Puddles. that had flowed out of the door of the lookout and everything. Yeah. It was really depressing looking. Oh, I bet was the alligator in there too. Just in the gone. Yeah, puddle, gone. No, a puddle itself. You I couldn't guess. even tell that was part of the metal that ran. You couldn't even tell what oh, it was. Man, that's nuts. yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. So finally rained and things calmed down a little bit, and then it reached the point where. There were a lot of resources and containment was at least happening and stuff. So then we went into a huge rehab phase, you know, with all of these crews. And they put two 20-person crews of locals from Darby and um, Connor and Stevensville and stuff like that to do rehab work. And we, and by then the Bitterroot Hotshot crew and others, spread straw over terrain on mouth of the west side canyons you know near blodgett and areas mill creek that had burned yeah and uh you know did clean up pine homes in sula and dug trenches to try and put down log barriers to try and divert water because we figured there were going to be big washouts you know yeah just everybody kept really busy doing that and then in october a whole bunch of us uh 20-person crew of us from the different districts got to fly back to Virginia to uh, Shenandoah National Park to a fire back there. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, but by the time we got there, the fire was basically out, so we patrolled for a couple of days and cut some pretty good snags, but it was that was the only fire we went to, oh, and really? we spent the rest of the time being used by these resources back there to rake oak leaves in these oh. parks and stuff it was <laughs> it was grueling yeah, <laughs> i bet the days were so long we were ready to come home oh I we were bet. back there a couple of weeks Jeez. You know, and by then that that stuff was over you know so yeah a lot of snow in the winter and i took a lot of pictures that winter i went to certain viewpoints and got photos of areas that had burned and the photo where the guy from the Alaska Type 1 team had taken the elk photo of the elk in the Bitterroot River. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew where that was, where that where it was. It was a bridge, on a, a little bridge over the river um, on the way to Sula, but not that far yet. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so cool. I went back there and got photos of it from the exact same location on the bridge where he took that photo from looking 
at that hillside when it was covered with snow. And the following spring, I got pictures of it when it was just all black and stuff, you know. Yeah. And went to a bunch of other sites, viewpoints, and, and took uh, photos. Nice. I need to go back to some of them now, what, 20, 23 years, years later? 23 years, yeah. And get pictures from the same exact spots because I GPSed them and stuff. That would be really cool to have like a... Just See like what a, they look like yeah, now. Yeah, and put them side by side on a wall or something or even yeah. just on a table just to look at them. But yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So so that was the end of that. And then I went to, then the West Fork adventure began the next year. That's when I went to West Fork in 2001. Yeah. For that season as prevention. Oh, and, gotcha. and then. One, one last question about 2000. Was there any other um, lookouts that got lost? Just the Sula Peak one? Only, only that one. Oh, yeah, wow. none of, some of the sites of former West Fork lookouts burn, oh. but there weren't any lookouts there anymore yeah hills half got wrapped don't think spot did but it lucked out um i don't think bear cone got wrapped either and i know lookout mountain did because sally blevins was up there that summer and she filled me in on you know that yeah so and then boulder didn't but west fork was ready if the fires came out of the wilderness they had plumbed the entire 360 around the ranger station with sprinklers and stuff. Oh, smart. And they had three Mark threes across uh, West Fork Road at the river. And they they built, you know, to keep the hose from getting crushed by vehicles, they mm. put the, these log strips and things, signs saying, slow down, fire hose, crossing road. Oh, nice. So they could, if they needed to, and they tested them like, once a day for the whole time, you know, just to make sure they worked. Yeah. But they could they could actually with those three Mark threes, they could cover the entire ranger station and the whole compound around it. Man, if that's it cool. did come. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a lot of sprinklers. It didn't, but it did <laughs> yeah. burn stuff right across the road up in those big hills from the job corps center. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. Man. And yeah. that Dixon Creek country burn, you know, it, it was just on Sula. It was just crazy stuff. Yeah. Did yeah. Medicine Point get wrapped or no, it was fine, no, huh? Nobody could even get up there because when the fires started, you know, a lot of that stuff down below it burned. It was lucky it didn't it didn't burn up. It burned all around it though, huh? Close, fairly close. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, really yeah, lucky. It didn't burn up though, so that's good. It's one of my favorite spots in the whole forest, especially after all that work, you know, to turn it into a a rental. Which, and it's turned out to be one of the one of the most popular in the country. I mean, from the day it comes on in January for the following summer. It's booked. Yeah. Completely booked, you know, every year. Man, and you know why, because you, you were up there. I mean, that place, like, I only spent the one night there, me and my wife, and, man, it was amazing. Yeah, it was It was a pretty pretty magical first season getting to be up there, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Yeah, it was a great start. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, 2000, West Fork had some fires, not a real lot. We had a, 2000, always, 2001, you mean, right? 2001, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and that was when I first met all the, the West Fork lookout folks because the guy that had been the lookout coordinator, so to speak, um, wasn't working there, wasn't left during the season. He wasn't there anymore. Oh, so I inherited that job. So that's when I met Mark and Rhett and Bear Cone Mark and, you know, the people that were on, um, well, yeah, Bear Cone Mark, those, those two lookouts. And then Lookout Mountain was a different person, and nobody was on Boulder, of course. 
And oh, so when was Boulder uh, last staffed? I guess. Oh, I think in like maybe '83 or '4 somewhere oh, it's been in a there. Long time. Yeah, Man, that's a cool spot too. Yeah, but a lot of people used it for the for just uh, it was open, and it had friends like Blue Nose, you know, and people would cut firewood and stay there, and they they wrote they had all these log books that people would fill up. Yeah. And I I had one of the guys on the West Fork crew bring them all down, put an empty one up there, but bring them all down in 2015 because I'm going to digitize them all. Oh, that'd be you know, cool. yeah. and then and then have somebody take them back up depending on what ends up happening with the lookout and stuff like that. But yeah. I wanted to make copies of it because there are all kinds of cool entries, you know, where people would be like January 8th had to hike up because of the snow, had to hike up all the way from the ranger station. Didn't get to the lookout until two o'clock in the morning in a blizzard, you know, stuff like that. Wow, could you imagine January? That'd be so oh. cold. And people would go up there and 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 snowshoe all the way to Boulder Point and stuff like that. I mean, Damn. crazy stuff. Yeah, that's but what I heard. People loved it. People loved that place. You know, it had a lot of lot of friends that would go up. And yeah. leave notes in this this deal. Yeah. And whenever we'd take a crew hike up there, I'd always I'd always sign it. Oh, cool. You know, and other folks in the crew would go up. They'd they'd sign it and stuff yeah. like that. How long does it take to get up there from? It's not that far, really. It's about three miles from where the trailhead is up above the station, and you could drive to that point. But it's it's pretty steep. So that's what I kind of figured. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a long long hike, but it's a steep hike. Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, so that's when I met all the lookouts cool. and didn't really help open them because they had opened, you know, with this other guy. But then when he left, I helped resupply them and then close them at the end of the season. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my doing that from then until last year. Yeah. Even though I'm not there anymore, I've still basically taken on that job as a volunteer to help do all of that stuff oh that's awesome yeah so the big event of 2001 for well for all of us on the forest basically was um the labor fire on labor day oh on september 3rd when dave rendick was killed by a snag he was a firefighter on sula yeah, we're hearing about that. Dave came to district to our district crew in '97 when I was there, and discovered that his birthday was the same day as mine, June 30th. Oh, really? So on in '97, June 30th, Dave turned 20, and I turned 51. <laughs> but you know what? There was like there was like no. There was no age barrier whatsoever. Yeah. That kid was into fire first season. He was into it. He liked the outdoors. We had, despite that age difference, we had everything in common. Yeah. He was a snowboarder. I'd like cross-country skiing and stuff. And then, you know, over those next few years, I mean, we'd meet up in the winter. And he said, I want to try cross-country skiing. So... He'd go cross country skiing with me over on the Anderson Mountainside, and yeah. he took me snowboarding once. I never did. Well, I only went that one time, and I never was any good. But we hiked all the way up Lost Trail on a day it was closed. You know, we were the only ones there, oh, cool. and he kind of showed me 
sort of how to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was a, he was a good kid. I really, really liked him. We went on a, a bunch of smoke chaser fires together and stuff. Yeah. And then in the late, so around 99, he got into the apprenticeship program. And he ended up going, you know, he had to go two, two I think two winters for a few months. Yeah, the and academy. then if you did it, then you got you had an appointment. Yeah. So he came back to the what to Sula as a GS five with a with his first appointment and stuff like that. And he came out to a fire I had before Blodgett, Eagle Point, way up on the boundary with uh, Rock Creek, oh. east of Sula. It was a cool fire. I I was the IC Type three, and I had. Uh, Three hotshot crews and a couple other crews up there, part of a, a, a another flathead crew. Flathead hotshots were there, and I still knew them all. Oh, cool! Yeah, man. it was it was a it was a great fire. And Dave came up with an aerial uh, heat detector, and I had him helicopter the fire toward the tail end of it, you know, to see if he could find any heat. And he did find a few, and they always carried these little weighted ribbons. You could toss them out, you know. And oh, cool. So he'd give me a lot long of where they were, you know, and then we'd have people go find them and stuff. And Yeah, kind of like a streamer from the yeah. jump shit. And he, we found a few little smokes, but anyway. So, yeah, so he was he was good. He was getting really good and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, i got to backtrack slightly. So in my entire career, there were probably, I could single out probably four events that were I don't know how even how to say it, were the ones that were the most intense things that I was either involved with directly or knew about. One of them, a couple of them I've already talked about, one was 89 when I almost got killed by that snag on that smoke chaser fire. Almost impaled, in, right? In black, black bear country, out, blacktail, whatever, on Sula, yeah. or I mean on Darby. Uh, that was the first one. And the next one, of course, was South Canyon, knowing Mackie and the aftermath of, you know, all of that and yeah. knowing so many of the Missoula Jumpers, Kevin and Kevin Erickson and Sarah and all those folks from Missoula that were there. Yeah. And then um, the big one, the really, the big one really, other than South Canyon, was that labor fire where Dave got killed. It was a tiny little fire. Got to West Fork that day because we were all working um, our day off because of the fire danger. And could see that our engine was gone and uh, some other vehicles. And they'd been there when we left the night before. Well, this fire had broken out. It was within the Lost Trail ski ski area, just to the right of the face up near the top there. Oh, really? Little bitty thing, you know, maybe, maybe an acre, acre and a half. I don't know. But our crew had gone up there to bring the engine and help set up a, a, a water system to get water to it. Yeah. And it was pretty much dead looking. And so the next morning, you know, we did PT at Sula, those of us that didn't go or didn't even know about it. And we got a call from Jim Leverton and dispatch saying that there'd been an accident on that fire and that somebody had been badly injured and life flight had been called and stuff like that, but not who or anything, you know? And so then we found out a couple of years later or a couple of years, a couple of, couple hours later that 
They didn't even get David to the hospital. He died. He got hit by a snag. Oh. He didn't even see it. It was, and it was a tree that had no visible damage to it from the fire. Turns out that fire above it had gotten into the ground and roots and it burned it off. Oh, jeez. And it just, it came down and hit him right in his head. Jeez, probably make really sound because there's nothing to break off at that no, point either, it, right? When it went, a couple of people just happened to look and saw it happen, but, I mean, there was no cracking noise, nothing. Yeah, no problem. And, and it was all over, you know, and it was just like, God dang it, you know. And so we had a, we had an all forest stand down. People that were on fires in other places came back and we all met up and, you know, just, you know, Dave's mom came up from California because they were from down there by San Luis Obispo somewhere. Oh, got you. Yeah. So right after that, um, about eight of us who were really close to Dave here on the forest, most, most of us from Sula, we got invited to come down and represent the Forest Service at his funeral. And, you know, it was an all-expenses-paid thing. We were going to fly to Seattle and then fly down there. And we left Missoula probably about 7 in the morning our time, headed towards Seattle to change planes to head south. And I had just changed. We are in Washington, and there weren't that many people on the plane. It was a big one, but there weren't that many people on it. So I was just getting ready to change sides because I knew if they flew the normal pattern, because I'd flown out that way before, that if you were on the left-hand side of the plane, you'd be able to see Mount Rainier from that side. Oh, yeah. So I just changed, pl- changed sides and was over there. And all of a sudden, it was September 11th, all of a sudden the plane just started to slowly veer off course in another direction. And the pilot came on and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're just letting you know that there has been a terrorist event in New York City on the East Coast and all aircraft flying over the United States are ordered to land at the closest airport for the size of the plane. Oh, wow. And we're going to Moses Lake, Washington. Go to Moses Lake, geez. And we're all like, holy crap. You know, I mean, yeah. that's all we knew. Something happened back in New York. Jeez. And we got there and they took it to a, the airport. New part of the airport wasn't even finished. They took us to this terminal. And somebody had a transistor radio and we were getting all these weird reports that somebody had, some Arabian country had declared war on the United States and they'd bombed some buildings in New York. I mean, just all these things, you know. Yeah. We had no idea, really, for sure what was happening. No TV or anything? No, oh. no, nothing at that terminal. And so we were there about an hour and a half, you know, just they, they did bring in a huge plate of donuts and, and cold drinks and stuff for us and coffee, but we had no idea what was going on. So Jeez. we had to call back to the Bitterroot um, and let them know that we were in Moses Lake and their Bitterroot was like, yeah, we're going to hate to do it, but we're going to cancel you guys going down there and you're going to stay there tonight and we'll have folks drive out there tomorrow morning to bring you back. Oh. And we we're bummed, you know, because we yeah. really wanted to represent the Bitterroot for Dave's mom and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they, there was a, a nice 
hotel, motel thing right along Moses Lake. And they drove us to it. And when we walked in the lobby, you could look down this hallway and there was like a, a lounge room that had a giant television in it. And we could see the smoke on the screen and weird oh, stuff on yeah. the screen. And we walked right in there and they were doing the replays of the planes going into the two World Trade Center buildings and the collapses because it had already happened. Yeah. And we we just spent the whole rest of the day and night in our rooms just watching that over and over and over and not believing, you know, what we were seeing. Yeah. It was man. crazy stuff. It was crazy. I remember where I was. I was in Whitehall eating breakfast and getting ready for school and my dad was like walking around watching the news and yeah i remember like the first plane already hit i'm pretty sure and then i saw the second plane i was like whoa you know that was yeah weird so that was the you know that was the third of the the events in my time that were you know really super special meaning yeah to me for sure yeah and we we're we we're kind of glad 2000 was 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 a good year for me on West Fork because it was, it was neat being out there. I really liked it there. I'd been out there on fires and stuff with the Hotshot crew and that one I told you about in 80 where we flew all the way out to West Fork's part of the Salmon River. Yeah. First helicopter ride to a wilderness fire, first jet boat ride, all that stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. I was jazzed to be there, you know. Yeah. So came back the next season, you know, and then I ended up coming back more and more all the time you know yeah just, yeah west fork it's got a it's an amazing allure i was talking to will about that last night did you talk to him yeah just cool he, he called me we talked for about an hour yeah he texted me right afterwards and we talked to him and you know through instagram and yeah he's talking about being in wyoming but you know his heart's still here in he the west fork he loved it out there yeah yeah it's yeah. a special and that place. kid would hike anywhere yeah if they needed somebody to go to a fire that was in the steepest most rugged country on the district Tebow's hand was up. <laughs> yeah, just a mountain goat too. <laughs> he was huh? ready to go. Oh, yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, but we had over all those years, you know, we had a ton of fires out there. West Fork was famous for getting big fires because there was a lot of wilderness. And when Dave Campbell was a ranger during all that period of time, you could pretty much count on the fact that they weren't going to be suppressed. Yeah. So we had a lot of trouble with a lot of them wanting to get things like, you know, Magruder and paradise and oh, just yeah. all this different stuff all, so all the cool cabins right we got really really proficient at wrapping things bridges lookouts you name it i mean west fork has got a, a building that's a small building that's entirely devoted to structure pro materials oh whoa. and it's probably right now it's probably got of different sizes and stuff, a hundred rolls of structure wrap. Jeez. We've got sprinklers, kits um, for wrapping stuff, you know, with all the staplers and everything you need in them. They're, they're all identical. There's about 12 of them. And you can grab any one of them, even if it says Spot Mountain Lookout. They're all the same, whether for a building or what. You can grab them and go or fly them out or whatever. And we did a we did a lot of that. We did a lot of it. Yeah, you know. Bet. This was this was in the era during this time period where oh god, I hope I have that here. Where Hell's Half, 
under Mark and Rhett's time period out there was, maybe I haven't got it. I'll keep looking. Yeah, yeah. No Hell's worries. Half between 2000 and the last rap while I was out there in 2013. Hell's Half was wrapped and evacuated more than any other lookout in the United States ever. Really? Yeah. Just in the hot zone, huh? Yeah. Jeez. I mean, it was nuts. That is nuts. It was nuts. I haven't been to any any lookouts in the West Fork, actually, now I'm thinking about it. I don't think I brought it. Oh, yeah. I wished I had, but, yeah, I, I have a list of that Mark and Rhett gave me, you know, of all the times it was wrapped. Oh, really? and or wrapped and evacuated and all this stuff and you know, i think it was like seven or eight wraps you know in those years i mean it was a lot Jeez, yeah, yeah. you have to bring in the next one yeah. um before i forget uh day's memorial uh plaque is it up, up by sula or is it on there's one on sula peak and then there's another one within lost trail ski area up somewhere up on the face i can't tell you exactly where it is there's oh. a road that when there's no snow runs across the face you know that you look at when you're at the lodge yeah. that one main and if you drive up onto that road you can just walk uphill from there and uh it's up there on a big rock oh gotcha yeah i think yeah. I, I think i read the one on sula but you know that the spot where he died up there he and i and a couple of others were up there in 98 we went up there to there was a an old chain up there attached to two metal posts that had become a danger because snowboarders liked that area and it got real popular and the grassers were afraid that if it stayed there that somebody was gonna either crash into it or it would be under snow at knee level or something oh, and yeah. they'd die if they hit it you know so we went up there to bust the chain loose and then uh they were able to pull those posts out and stuff like that. But Dave and I and Ruth sat there on a break in virtually the exact spot where he ended up dying Whoa. in 01. And he was talking about how much he loved it there. And that was his favorite, one of his favorite places because it was, you know, not on a trail. It was, you kind of made your own trail through those trees. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy stuff, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Bomb deal. Yeah, but there were there were a whole series of fires, and I'm not going to go to, into them all. But I mean, I got to be IC of a few of them. IC by proxy because, you know, they weren't putting them out. Hmm. We were mainly just coordinating, wrapping stuff, or, you know, telling resources that were there what we wanted them to patrol and that kind of thing. In '05, we had a series. We had like 40 wilderness fires going on at the same time 40. out there in the Frank and the Selway. Jeez. You know? Yeah. And I got to fly them, which was, that was kind of interesting to look at them, but there wasn't much to report because unless they were close to salmon or something, you know, nothing was going to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Probably some of the uh, country probably need a little bit of fire in it too, huh? Yeah. But yeah, that was, it was interesting, you know, doing, doing all that stuff and, you know, we had the Rombo fire in 07. We helped wrap Medicine Point. Uh, the Laguna Hotshots from San Diego were up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and cool. we got to take one squad one day up to wrap Medicine Point, and then we took the other squad the next day and wrapped Two Good Cabin 
down in one of those drainages down there. Yeah, that's and cool. And so we had people from all over the country show up out there for these different fires and stuff, you know? Yeah, cool, man. And in 2011, uh, there was a fire out by Oriana Lookout on the Salmon um, Saddle Fire, it was called. And it combined with another fire out there on, I think it was August 22nd, and Skyler and I were patrolling that day. Doug wanted us to drive the uh, the crossover road that went from Hughes Creek all the way over to Salt Creek and Johnson Creek, where this proposed mine thing might happen. Ooh, and while we were out there, um, we he wanted us to drive it because he, he Doug had had a report that. Uh, there might have been a vehicle back in there and it's supposed to be a lock gate. So we were supposed to go in and drive it and make sure there was nobody in there, lock it behind us, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we got just a little ways up that road and Skyler looked out to the west and went, Marine, look out there. And there was this huge column building out there. And we were like, holy crap, that fire must have taken off. We'd just been out there the day before when it went from 10 acres to 500 acres out on the salmon side doing weather and stuff like that and we knew it was just a matter of time yeah and so that was the day that it it got the wind and it it blew big time Jeez. and we're standing there looking at it and she's like how big do you think it is and i went i don't know it's kind of deceiving because it's a long way off you know and i don't know where exactly that part of it is if it's on us yet or not so i 500 acres? I don't know. This guy was like, I think it's bigger. Yeah. Like, you might be right. I don't know. Yeah. And so she goes, look at your arm. She held her arm out, and we were getting ash where we were. Oh, whoa. It wasn't hot ash, but it was ash. Yeah. So we went back to the ranger station, and it blew onto us, and it did a 17,000-acre run in a six-hour wind event. Oh, man, that's crazy. That is hauling ass. And that night, the guy on one of the salmon lookouts took this photo of it at sunset. Oh, man. <laughs> Look at the size of that monster. At sunset, too. Still eating yeah. like that. I I have never seen a column that was that black. I mean, it was yeah. absolutely incredible. You put up like that in the evening, too. You know, usually stuff starting to die down a little bit, you know? He was on Stein Mountain Lookout. Oh, Stein Mountain, huh? Yeah. If you know where to look when you drive over Lost Trail Pass headed toward Gibbonsville, yeah. you can see it oh, right yeah. off in the distance. But you have to know what you're looking for oh. before you'd see it. But yeah. it was a long way off. But, yeah, so then West Fork was involved with that fire for a solid month. You know, we had... We had a team there, and the Mendocino hotshots came up. Oh, really? And a bunch of crews and stuff. And I got a I got a gig on it. I was involved the whole month, basically. I was a safety off field line safety, but I was also basically a field observer. Okay. And so I spent probably three weeks of the month, basically on this one viewpoint where I could see parts of the Wood Creek drainage big time for all the crews that were crew folks that were working down in there yeah and so i'd give i'd spend weather for them and be their eyes because i knew where they were all working and i'd check in with the west fork lookouts further out lookout mountain was obviously back behind and she was a huge help with pinpointing spots to 
folks from the team. Oh, awesome. Man. And she was right on. The stuff she told them where things were were right on. Oh, such a big help. Yeah. You know? And then and then the further out Westwork lookouts, Salmon, uh, Hell's Half, basically those two, they were our weather eyes because we couldn't see the far horizon. Oh. So I'd check in with them at strategic times every day, especially if, if there was talk about maybe lightning or wind. And I... I had planned, I told all the crews and the folks who were working there, I'm going to do it on the work frequency that all of us are talking to one another on the fire on so that you can hear what they tell me. Yeah, smart. Yeah, and it worked out perfect because they'd, they'd tell us, they'd warn us if they thought something was coming or that it was imminent that it was. And after I thanked them, I'd call each of the crews and stuff up and go, did you copy that weather report? And so they thought that was cool. Yeah. Mendocino was really impressed by our fire organization. So we had the camp down at Scripps's Ranch up above Painted Rocks Lake. Oh, yeah. And uh, he let us use it, the site for free. Oh, cool. That's where all the, the tents and the logistic tents and all that stuff were. And I remember one morning we were all out there at daybreak. Sun wasn't even up yet. It was cold, even during, even during August and stuff, you know, real still down in there. And so... We're all drinking coffee and trying to warm up, waiting for the briefing to happen this one morning. And in one direction, you could look down Scripps's field, and there was a herd of about 40 elk. And off in the other direction on the hills, you could hear wolves howling. Oh, wow. And so the ops guy from the team, you know, he called the meeting together, and he goes, Montana is so cool. Yeah. We got elk in one direction and wolves howling in the other direction. What could be better, you know? Man, yeah, getting the full deal. Mendo, there. Mendo was digging it. They were they were a great crew. We'd had problems with them way back in the day when I was on the Hotshot crew. They were they were pretty adverse to Region One crews, you know. They yeah, were pretty strict and regimented and didn't like our freedom, I guess, you know. But new leadership. The guy that was in charge of him, the, the soup at this point in time, was super good guy. Yeah. Really helpful. They helped all the Type 2 crews who were there, you know, helped line them out with different work that had to be done, and helped the, have their sawyers, helped train some of the Type 2 guys' sawyers, you know. Yeah. They were they were a perfect crew. They were just awesome to be there and everything. That's all. What year was that again? 2011? Huh? Was that two, 2011, you said? What year was this that? was 2011, yeah. 2011, yeah. I was just trying to see if my, my buddy Jeremy, who jumps out of Missoula, was on there. Jeremy Croker. I'll have to ask him. Hmm. Yeah. I don't I don't remember, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he would I don't know if he really stand up at that point, or if he was even with him. He might have been jumping already. Yeah, but, but they were a great crew. They were so helpful and everything, you know. And they were impressed with the fact that, so Kerry Taylor was out there. He was the AFMO at Darby then. And Kerry had been on the Hot Shot crew with me for, well, he was there actually before I got there. 84, and then we were all together, 84, 5, 6, and 7, before he got a different job at, at Darby. Oh, yeah. And Justin Abbey was out there. Oh, cool. He was one of the overhead, and he'd been on the Bitterroot Hotshot crew, and I had. And so these Mendo guys, you know, they, they really like that, that we as some of the people that were in charge of these different parts of that fire had – a bunch of hotshot crew experience and stuff like that. They really liked that, you know, and when they would be, they worked up this one road that I had a viewpoint at where I spent so much time being eyes and everything. Yeah. And they'd stop by, their soup would stop by anytime that he had to go back to camp, get some more fuel or do something or other, you know, he and his assistant would stop and, and talk to me and they were like, 
this is the coolest place that we have ever been on a fire. And it is so cool that all you people that have hotshot crew experience and a lot of it are part of the team for this fire, you know? And he said, you would never catch an AFMO on the Mendocino hiking around out on a fire doing stuff. There's no way. It just wouldn't happen. It's a different world. We really like the way you guys do stuff, you know, and that made us feel good. Yeah, I've seen a lot, especially California's got some really beautiful country and a lot of fire experience, so that that does say a lot, you know? Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. And when they left, when it it was time for them to leave after the two weeks that they'd been there, uh, we all came off the fire late that evening. There'd been a, a little slop over area that they had been involved in catching and stuff like that. And... We all left after dark, and their foreman called me on the radio because we'd all check in before we'd head down, you know? Yeah. And he called me on the radio, and he said, hey, man, we're leaving tomorrow morning. You knew that, right? And I went, yeah, I did. And he said, well, I just wanted to, you know, thank you for everything. And I said, we can talk about it in the morning because what time are you guys leaving? I will be there to see you guys before you leave. And he told me when he thought that, well, it'll be after breakfast and, and and after the briefing. So I said, I'll for sure be there and don't leave without me finding, you know. Yeah. So I found him and I said, when you guys, when you guys check out and get ready to pull out in your buggies and stuff, I'm going to, I'll be down there. Call me on the radio because I want to talk to you guys. So I went over and had them all get out of their rigs, you know, and they all got in a semicircle and stuff. And I said, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. And I know what is expected of a type one crew because I was on one for 11 full seasons. And you guys and gals are the epitome, in my opinion, of what a hotshot crew is supposed to be. And the fact that you were more than willing to help all these other resources, Sawyers, the type two crews, and were willing to do the stuff you did, you know, and offered good suggestions for areas that were iffy and everything on maybe another way to do it. That means a lot to us. And I just want you guys to know that you are welcome on this forest anytime. And so every one of them came up and gave me a hug before they left. And stuff. <laughs> oh, it's so cool, man. <laughs> but it was cool. I mean, they deserved it. They were, they were just outstanding. Yeah. That's so good. So important to tell him how, how much you appreciate him. Cause you know, the good feedback, it's you yep. know, like any job. A lot of times you don't get enough good feedback. You get the bad feedback and you yep. know, so. And then that, important. and then that next year was the, another gigantic fire year on West Fork. It was the year of the Mustang fire down on the salmon chalice. Oh yeah. And West Fork had a ton of fires. Some of them that got real big and virtually None of them had anything done to them. Yeah. You know, and we we wrapped Blue Nose that summer. Oh, really? Yep. The salmon was going to let it burn up. It was on the historic register, but they just had decided that they wanted it to go away so they didn't have to deal with it anymore. So sick. That's such a cool spot. And I was talking to their FMO because he'd been on our crew, on the Hotshot crew back in 88. It's 87 and 88 with me and none. And I said, well, we're not going to let that happen because we have the wrap material and we will wrap West Fork will wrap blue nose. Yeah. And he said, do what you want. We're not going to do anything, you know? So uh-huh. I called Mary Williams, who was this, this is the forest historian here, archeologist and stuff and told her. And she says, that's crazy. That's that lookouts on the register. Will you guys really wrap it? And I said, totally. 
I already yeah. checked with the FMO. They're into it. Yeah. And so she said, I'm going to call my counterpart down on the Salmon Chalice. She called and told her about it, and she went ballistic too. So the two of them decided that that, that night, the the type one team, the bunch of type one teams cycled through all that because it lasted for months. The team that was down there at the time had a morning briefing and an evening briefing. And so they found out what time the evening briefing was there and they went down there and they, they spoke to the team, you know, in front of everybody. And they went, that lookout's on the historic register and it's going to be wrapped. Oh, and good. the West Fork right over the hill is willing to do the rap. And the team didn't know anything about it. The IC was like, nobody's ever even mentioned that lookout because, I mean, the fire's not up there right now. Yeah, news. And we didn't know anything about it. And he said, it's a go. You tell West Fork to just let us know when they're going to be up there wrapping it and to keep a list of all of the materials that they use. And after it's wrapped, have your representative, which was would, was going to be me, yeah. call down to our logistics. We'll tip them off, call down to our logistics, and give them the complete list of the materials that you used, and we'll give you a P number, and you can go replace it all. Oh, cool. And that's what they did. Oh, that's awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, and it's spotted to within 30 feet of it. Really? Yeah, it didn't nuke up there, but, you know. It's that lookout was bone dry because it's so old. That's what I was gonna say, yeah. Yeah, and then we got to go up at the end and unwrap it too, which was cool. Yeah, yeah. We did a lot of recon flights, and salmon got wrapped. Hell's half got wrapped again, as I recall. <laughs> yeah. Um, spot didn't get wrapped. It got wrapped in 05, though, um, during one of those big sieges and stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Bearcone didn't get wrapped, but some of them did. Oh, gotcha. And we did structure prod and Magruder, set up pumps and sprinklers and on bridges and stuff. Yeah. Horse Heaven Cabin got wrapped. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it and, got wrapped again this last year, didn't it, Horse Heaven? Yeah, Skyler and I got to go out there and head that up. Oh, yeah. cool, yeah. Yeah, so that year, that was, Crandall Fire happened on West Fork 2 that year. And yeah. It was kind of a big nuisance. And then Mustang actually joined into it during the season and then there were nez fires that came on in that country down below salmon mountain and so the bitterroot boundary the west fork boundary but the bitterroot boundary from the far end of the west fork where it joins the nez all the way around to the to the uh there's a stretch of the payette that's along the other side of the salmon river from us down there oh so nez payette salmon the entire southern bitterroot boundary with those forests all burned 70 miles holy cow man yeah that's a lot it was crazy 70 miles Jeez, it was man. crazy you know and we had our, our every morning when the after they they were doing uh the flights to map the fires from you know up high and then david fox would get there early the next morning and he'd download all of those maps and then in our or have you been in the dispatch office at west fork no i've never we, been inside like darby we've got one of those huge maps on the wall of basically of the district oh yeah and yeah. david would redraw every morning the changes in these perimeters i've got pictures of him doing that with my camera of of that you know and there's just these 
big different size circles of fire like all over this map especially especially the wilderness part but a lot of it that wasn't in the wilderness too jeez it just ran crazy all summer you know yeah yeah and then it finally you know finally by the end the the weather changed and stuff changed and then the last big year out there in recent years big was the next year when we had the gold pan fire the gold pan fire started on gold pan creek across the Solway from hell's half and down from salmon a ways and it was just a tiny little thing when mark i was off the day it started mark and rat found it from hell's half oh that's a tiny little wisp and when i got home from going to hamilton that day I'd always flip on my computer, you know, and I had an email from Mark and Rhett with a picture of this tiny little wisp of smoke. Yeah. I said, where's that? And gold pan fire. And I said, suppression or no? And no for now, it said. So the next day when I got back out there, Campbell had already made the decision. Doug had, uh, Doug and Shane had folks ready to rock. Or actually, Shane wasn't there anymore then. Oh. Um, he had... He had a smoke chaser team ready to go. You could drive all the way to Kim Creek Saddle, and it was only about maybe a miles less than that walk to get to it. And from the helicopter went out and looked at it, you know, when it was tiny, it was tiny. Two people could have put it out in an afternoon, probably without even needing any water. Oh, no. But Dave wouldn't let him put it out. Yeah. And so it just kind of percolated around for the rest of that week, didn't really do a lot, grew a little bit in size. And the following Sunday, I was flying Air Patrol, and I was on my way out there. I was just about to maybe five miles this side of Hell's Half going out to check it. And we couldn't see it Mm -hmm. from our location. And I knew that Jake Rao and Doug had hiked out that morning to take a look at, and they were out there, and they took a look around, and they said, you know, it'd still be doable to to catch it if we could get a crew out here or whatever, but, you know, they weren't going to get the permission, and so we're five miles from Hell's Half, and all of a sudden, this big blast of smoke went up off that thing. Oh, man. And within, within the 10 minutes it took us to get out there, it was probably 200 acres, and in the, in the half hour that we flew around it, it was probably 600 acres. Jeez. And so as soon as we got out there and I saw that column, I called, I called on the frequency, you know, to, Doug, are you and Jake still down there? Because if you are, you definitely see what's happening. And he goes, no, no, thanks for checking on, on us. But we had already left that area and we're almost back to Kim Creek Saddle now. And I went, oh, oh that's good. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Oh, it's bad. Yeah. And then that thing burned for for two months you know and the fs pro run that got done uh like within that first couple of days you know they're different they run it through different dryness scenarios but the one that that took into into um account what the dryness was it was a drought summer what the dryness was at that point july 15th or 18th or something like that it was right around that when it started the with the dryness and if the prevailing winds from westerly winds did what they normally do often during that time of year in the summer that that fire had the potential to run all the way into montana 
and reach probably 40,000 acres. That's exactly what it did. Really? And it, oh. that it would probably threaten Magruder and Hell's Half and potentially even Bear Cone over on this side. But the, the, the decision from the powers that be at the ranger station was that uh, those FS Pro runs are, or those runs are usually always wrong. No, not, not that no, time. we're gonna let it do its thing, and it did it, it did its thing, man. Holy cow! So could have put it out with two to three people, and there were two hundred and fifty out there, mainly just patrolling Magruder and the roads and stuff, you know, cutting snags, and it jumped across the the road that goes from Nez Peak or Nez Pass to to uh, um, Magruder. Yeah. And people are out there having to saw trees down and stuff like that. And we ended up having to wrap Barracone as a contingency. Hell's Half got wrapped. Mark and Rhett got moved to Salmon because they wouldn't let the volunteers because, you know, they're, they're there for just a few days or four days. or And the team wanted... They didn't want different opinions. They wanted somebody out there who would be there the whole time, and if they called them for information, it was the same people telling them, which which makes sense. You yeah, know? totally. If you're a volunteer and you come up, even if you have experience, I mean, you come up and you don't know for sure other than the note that was left for you what happened the next day, and they just didn't want them driving through yeah. all of that, you know, and taking a chance on something happening or whatever. Yeah, it makes so a lot of sense. Mark and Red ended up going, getting to go up there for a while. And we thought we lost Hell's Half. We got permission a couple of times during that. When they, we'd always check in with them. They had a TFR, but we check in with them from Air Patrol because there were a few things that West Fork wanted to find out that the team wasn't providing the info on. So they had, had me, West Fork asked me to call them and give them our call sign and tell them we were bitter at air patrol and we'd like to check out the area around hell's half if you don't have any aircraft up there and this is my intended route and this that and the other and they were cool they're like nope we don't have any resources up in that area right now um just let us know when you leave the area and what your heading is so we went out there and looked around and there was fire all over the place you know and like Man. a couple of days later, we were way, we'd gone way out around and we were out at Hell's Half. And there were twin columns in Hell's Half Creek, big ones. You couldn't oh. even see in the lookout. We were, we were convinced that it was gone. Yeah. It's like we didn't see how, even with it being wrapped. But there was a camera. They'd put a camera up there. Hmm. And that evening, the camera actually swung partly in the direction of the lookout. And it was, Still there? It was still wrapped. It's still there. That'd have been kind of cool looking. And it made it, but there were, there were spots within 10 feet of it. Oh. Yeah, when we finally got up there, you know. Yeah, yeah see the black around it. Yeah. And then, you know, we we just spent tons of time out there in West Fork wrapping things and unwrapping things and rolling up miles of hose and refurbing all those Structure Pro kits and ordering more wrap, you know, for our collection. And yeah. we, figured, we figured, too, that... Since we did a lot of that and we had a lot of wrap, that if any of the other districts had a fire and needed some wrap, it'd save time because they could just get it to us and then we could get the P number from them and we could replace it, place whatever we use in the way of wrap or yeah. the, the foil tape that we use to fasten it together or staplers or any of the myriad, myriad of other 
parts of all of that equation, you know. Yeah, and the knowledge of, you know, how to rap, you know, best way to rap, all that good stuff, you know. We even put on a couple of little rap courses for people on the forest and stuff like that because we did it so often, you know. Yeah, it's good stuff to know. Yeah. I haven't even done it that much my whole career. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we did it all the time. We had it all wired on the correct way to do the lookouts because there's the way you overlap the rap, you don't, and wind wind is the enemy of structure wrap and it's not really designed to be on for months and sometimes it was on for months you know because wind works on it and if it can if it can find one little place where it can burble the wrap eventually it'll bust it open and then you know it'll open up and then yeah then fire fire could get in it you know and we had times though that were it had been on so long, like the Hell's Half Deal that year, that holes had been worn in it, and then it rained, and the rain went down, and then when we cut the wrap off, we'd just get drenched with oh, sheets of water and yeah, stuff like that geez. that we didn't know was up in there. Yeah. You know, so it was all a big learning experience, you know, but we we really got a lot of practice, man. I bet. We did it all the time. Yeah, it sounds like it worked. I mean, you'll oh, save like Hell's Half and stuff there. It was you know? so much work, but that was you know, and then scattered into all this, we did tons of burning out there. West Fork did lots and lots of pile burning. Had especially after David Fox got there as the fuel specialist, because you know they, we had contract planners that, or contract thinners that would work out there all summer long, yeah. making just acres and acres and sometimes hundreds of acres of piles. And earlier, so probably from twenty. 10 or 11 earlier we still had a fair number of logging units that we'd burn not huge ones like back in those early days at Sula and Darby but you know ones that people had traipsed through and required coordination on how to do it and everything yeah we did a lot of that but in the in the years probably from 20 2014 2013 on it was primarily except for just a few of those units it was piles, lots of piles, and then spring understory burns and stuff like that. Yeah. And we'd go help all the other districts do that stuff too. So I had a lot of fun over this over this time period, you know. I a lot of times I'd get to be the holding boss on one side or another of some of these big burns that we or the other districts did. And I'd get to help coordinate, you know, bringing the fire down the sides as the, the centers would get burned out by lighters and stuff like that and yeah had had bitterroot hotshot crew a few times on my my on my side oh, cool. you know doing the doing the lighting for me and stuff like that and yeah. that was always fun to get to work with those folks again and everything you yeah know? absolutely man yeah yeah no no we had we had a lot of fun and so in 2014 um i need to back up slightly Nope, let's go to 2014. Oh, yeah. 2014, we had a fire in the Selway um, out beyond the ranches that are out there called Elevator Mountain. Mm-hmm. And it was right near the Nez boundary and stuff. And so it was a let burn deal. But the way it worked was when the fire, when a fire, when a wilderness fire crossed the boundary from one forest to another, the forest that ends up having the larger portion of it assumes 
responsibility for the fire. So it started on the NAS out there north of Gardner and stuff. Oh. And then when it came on the Bitterroot, it finally reached the size that was more of it on us than them. So we had to take over the fire, which really didn't amount to anything because, I mean, we really weren't getting to put it out anyway. Yeah. But we did wrap Gardner for like the third row year in a row. Oh, really? And Daniel Moak, Mark and Rhett's son, was out there all three years and got wrapped and evacuated. Oh, really? <laughs> so their family has been involved in like, God, I don't know, 10 or 12 wraps and evacs and yeah. stuff like that over the years. Man, that's why, yeah, so his parents yeah. are lookouts while he's doing the lookout thing too? And oh, that's cool. Yeah, and he's still doing it. He's a college professor now with a PhD. Really? And he has summers off, so he's, he does a lookout on the McCall District over in, oh, in Idaho. There. Idaho, yeah. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah. Got in his blood when he was a kid, probably, huh? It did, because all three of them, all, you know, he and Leah, who was on our crew, yeah. they all they all worked, you know, did doing fire stuff and everything, and grew up, the three of them grew up on lookouts wow. as kids and stuff, you know? Man, that's cool, man. That, yeah. Not too many people get to say that, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, in, you know, in, in 2016, I think it was 2016, I got to perform Leah's, I was the officiant at Leah's wedding on Hell's Half. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, that, that was, was that was really cool. That was super cool. An honor, too, man. Yeah, it was really an honor. Yeah, it was very cool. Awesome. So during that 2014 summer, I lucked out and got to do a five or six day work float trip on the Solway. Oh, man. Yeah. The West Fork... Uh, well, the forest, the Bitterroot Forest had an agreement with all of those ranches, those private ranches down there to look for evasive weeds like, you know, not just knapweed, but other things, leafy scourge and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, leafy yeah. spurge, but spurge. we called it leafy scourge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this trip was actually the, the weeds cruise float trip. And Lisa, who's been on Gardner as the lookout for the last five years or so, she was the river ranger down there then. So she was the one that was the the person in charge of our the river portion of our float trip. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So, you know, we all bought the food. She'd send out a list telling everybody what to do. And let's see, there were there were one, two, three, four, four or five rafts. And it was one of us and a river guide who who was the main person that rode the raft and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, it was, I'd always wanted to do that. And I never got to, and I never, ever in my life figured I'd get paid to do it. Yeah, man. But we'd stop at all the ranches and examine their fields, and they'd tell us and show us places where, you know, a new bunch of napweed or something was coming up and so they'd spray stuff if it wasn't right close to the river or whatever yeah yeah and we'd camp every night along the (sighs) river and stuff i mean it was what a trip it was very very cool yeah i bet seen a lot of country that like people don't see oh yeah private ranches i'd never floated it ever before i'd always wanted to you know but just never never did yeah yeah it was beautiful we were the last group it was right at the tail end, you know, because the Selway is internationally famous because during the height of the permit season, only one trip can go on per day. Oh. And so unlike the Middle Fork of the Salmon, where dozens can go on every day. Yeah. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of people out there with only one a day, unless some of the floats lay over for a day, 
you literally don't see anybody else. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I mean, we only saw a few other parties the the whole five days that we were there. Jeez, man. Yeah, it was it was really something. Oh, sounds like a dream. It was. You know? It was a dream come true. Yeah. And then we dealt with that elevator mountain fire and Gardner got wrapped and Yeah. And then we we got to we got to fly out in the fall from West Fork and unwrap it. Oh, cool. And that was the first and only time I've ever been to Gardner and I got the helicopter to it. That's really cool. So that was fun. Yeah, cause it's a bit of a hike in, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a hike from yeah. any direction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see it on a map. It's like, oh. yeah, it's a, it's a long ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's neat up there. It's a neat spot. Oh, it's bet. low compared to most of the lookouts, you know, that are around. But it it has a pretty amazing view, and it finds it finds West Fork fires that spot, you know, has terrain that hides from them. Oh yeah, out to the north. So yeah. gardeners. Gardner's found fires for us too. I was going to say and a couple of years ago they did. She, and last year, you know, she had she had me go look at a fire that was on our side of a ridge that she could see and confirm what it was. And then she saw smoke coming out of a lower drainage and white cap that went up over. And we found that one too. That's cool. So yeah, she's a big help. Yeah. Gardner's a big help. And technically garden gardener is on the Bitterroot. Yeah, it's on our side, yeah. Yeah, it's you on our side. But yeah. then Naz has, has been in control of it for a long time. But yeah. it's cool that she's got frequencies for both though. We always wanted to get it back. Yeah, I think it'd yeah, be cool. she's got one of our radios. We we give her one of our handhelds oh, every funny. summer. And we did the same thing with Daniel so that, you know, she can talk to folks on our frequency if she needs to and stuff like that too. Yeah, all her, all Although her. they've got all the stuff's programmed into the base radios anyway, but oh, gosh, it yeah. just makes it handier, yeah, you know. Easier, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I heard her and the Mokes talking back and forth in the spot there and then coordinating on fire and then she called into us and you know, like once in a while. Like it, it's always funny, it always catches me off guard because I forget like Gardner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that takes it that takes it up pretty far and and you know, my last full season as a temporary, you know, was 2016. And I don't know, I, you know, I kind of didn't want to stop really. But I thought Tina was going to retire then too down in San Diego. So I went ahead and did it. Yeah. I probably would have toughed it out for two more because she decided that she was going to work for two more years down there. But in a way, it turned out okay because I got to do a lot of really good air patrol flights those, those two years beyond you know yeah but yeah 2016 and you know west fork was really cool about stuff and i'll be honest with you, you man you know when i stopped in 2016 that fall i mean i turned 70 on june 30th and i still passed the pack test that year that's awesome but it man. was freaking those last five years or so before that feeling it they were hard yeah. They were really hard because I just wasn't that fast anymore. I mean, it was, I was still in good shape for my age, but let's be honest. Yeah, you look incredible. Being in good shape at 65 to 70 isn't the same as being in good shape at 25 or even 40, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a pace, man. Like, yeah. everyone tries to downplay the pack test, but you got to be cruising. You got to hold Fork, it. West Fork was, was cool about it because I was valuable to them in a number of ways because I could, I could, assume the duty officer position if they needed somebody to have a break or whatever, you yeah. know, and they could trust me to do that. And I still went out and did stuff with the crew, but they, they didn't send me on fires that were like killer hikes to places because it's just like, no, you don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And not because you don't want to, but 
they agreed with me. You know, I said, the thing for me is, and I brought this up every year, those last years, the thing for me is that I don't want to be a liability to the other firefighters on the crew because I can't keep up with them. I could still get there, but I'm not going to get there at the same speed that they are. And that means I'm going to be hiking by myself or else they have to go slow and that might jeopardize what they can do on a fire. And I don't want that to happen. And they're like, don't worry about that. You know, you're a good mentor to the kids and you know, there's some fires that you will go on and you're still doing burning with us and everything. And you know, that made me feel really good that my value to them was enough that they were still happy that I was around and they were willing to make allowances that I wasn't going to go on some killer hike fire, you know? Yeah, well, absolutely. Man, yeah. like, I mean, the whole forest, I think, recognizes what a value you are because of the experience you've had. You yeah, know? well, thanks. But I mean, yeah. that made me feel really good that I was still a value to them. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. And so at the end of that season, you know, I decided ahead of time that I think, I think this is probably going to be it i mean i'm hoping to still be around doing lookout stuff and everything but yeah and so then i decided on they wanted a party i always thought that i'd never want anything like that that i was just going to walk out and that'd be it but you know i had so many friends on all the districts and folks that were still around that i'd worked with and everybody was like no come on i mean you got to do this because we all love you and we want to be there, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is a big deal. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe it will be fun, you know? So we set a date in early January and I'd gone down to Tina's place for a couple of months and then she, we drove back. We spent a couple of days in Sun Valley and went Ooh. snowshoeing down there and drove back and we got up here. I think the party was on around the 6th of January at the clubhouse in Darby is where it was going to be. And it was really cold and there was a lot of snow and we got back and the day of the evening of the party was supposed to start around five and it was like below zero. You know, I thought, shit, nobody's going to show up to this and I don't blame them. You know, the place was packed. It was unbelievable. You know, it was just so cool. Yeah. And Mark and Rat, you know, took, they, they, they videoed, snippets of the whole thing oh cool and they actually recorded the whole thing and all the people that you know had something to say or whatever sister sandy came in there were people there from season one and there were people there from season 41 yeah you know from the whole gamut and stuff it was it was really pretty freaking cool that's so i'm glad you did it man i'm too because i didn't think i'd want to you know but it it was it was really cool. Yeah. It was really cool. A lot of cool cards and they gave me a everybody gets a forest belt buckle when they leave. I never thought I wanted one of those really, but I got one. Yeah, it's like pretty cool to have now, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool now, yeah. you know. And That's so special, man. Some other other cool photos and, you know, just different things like that. And it was it was it yeah. was some of the some of the salmon folks even drove all the way down in sub-zero temperatures in a snowstorm from Missoula to come to it, which oh, was man. pretty freaking neat. Yeah, it's so special, man. And that's, like, why it's so special is the reunion, you know, yeah. what makes it so great, I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was basically the end of that. But, I, you know, I had made it known that if the West Fork had let me, I still, as a volunteer, I still wanted to come in and help open and close all the West Fork lookouts and, do all the stuff I'd done before. And they're like, yeah, yeah, man, 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's do, Let's do it, you know? Yeah. And so that was the plan, and I'd let up, let dispatch and everything know that if they won't, they'd let me, that I'd still like to fly air patrol and everything, you know? Yeah. And they were in, they were into that. So 2017, you know, I started doing recons of the West Fork lookouts ahead of time and helping them open, close them all and, you know, resupply and... I'd got the horse back up to to spot because Mark and Rhett were up there starting in 2017. Oh, yeah. So I got to do that a few times over the years. In 2015, I talked uh, the forest engineer, Sean, into going up to take a look at uh, at spot because it hadn't been staffed since like 08, something like that, 09. It was getting pretty shabby yeah and there was some rumblings you know from different places that well maybe it's time to just burn it and get rid of it you oh, know no. but it's like no i think it's still okay i think it just needs some work so yeah i talked west fork in 2015 and letting me take engineer sean and mark smith who was the trail crew lead guy yeah yeah up there and we went up in a snowstorm and we got up there and they sean looked over the whole thing and he goes it's pretty shabby but there's nothing wrong with it structurally. It's still a good lookout. So just need a little TLC. So that talk, Doug is the FMO and deciding to restaff it and oh, let awesome. let Mark and Rhett go up there. That is so awesome. And they've so done so much work on it since. You know, it looks just like it's brand new. That's we cool. talked Mary Williams, who was the forest archaeologist. So when they were still at Hell's Half those last few years, we talked to her in the letting us return it to the original white color that it was when it was built in 73 or 72. Oh, cool. Was it whatever. brown then? Actually, it was maybe a little bit earlier than that. Oh. Yeah, the whole the whole lookout was white. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so was Spot when, when the lookout that's up there now was built. Oh, really? And so we talked them into, into letting us turn return Spot to its white color oh, also. Oh, cool. Did they make it brown or something? Was that what the... They yeah, it got stained brown and stuff, and That's it was awesome. hell to get all that stain out of there and everything, but Mark and Rhett plugged away at it, you know? And, oh, cool. Yeah, and got it done. Yeah, the white's a little nicer color. Yeah. Yeah, so that 2017 was a huge year. That was the year of the Lolo Peak fire and stuff up at the north end of the valley. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was on that one. We had a lot of stuff going on down here and did a lot of air patrol flights. I think I've got a thing that I'll tell you in a few minutes, but we we did, a. I mean, I did over 30 flights in 2017 and 18 over the course of the summer. And in the latter part of the summer, um, we found a fire on a recon out there on a flight out there in Eagle Creek that Spot couldn't see. Oh man! And they had found one on Green Ridge, which is east or yeah, east of where the Eagle Creek is. But they could see that. Oh. And ended up being a couple of fires out away from the lookout that kind of percolated around for a bit. And Eagle was invisible to them, so we'd check it all the time. And then on this one particular day, we flew out there. It was pretty smoky, but we were able to safely thread our way out there because it looked like something was probably going to happen. Yeah. And we found two more fires that they couldn't see through the smoke from Spot on Green Ridge further out. And all of them were getting pretty active. And Eagle was getting really active, but it 
it hadn't made a run and wasn't indicating that it was for sure going to make a run. But Doug had sent Skyler and part of the crew up there to wrap spot that day just as a contingency. And once they got it wrapped, they and Rhett were going to hike out. Mark had already, was still teaching then oh, yeah. at Rocky Mountain College, so he had already left. She was up there solo. And so when I got out there, they were there, and they had the they had the lookout pretty much all wrapped. They weren't quite done, but they were working on it. And we went and looked at Eagle and those other fires and stuff. And I remember when I flew back over spot and we were on our way out, I said, you know, I, I'm not sure what Eagle is going to do, but you guys better keep your eyes open because it's hard to say what it might do because yeah. it, it might yeah and so got back and landed at the airport and went into dispatch because that's where it was then was still out at the airport kelly was the lead dispatcher then oh yeah yeah and i i walked in to get ready to do the flight payment stuff and everything and she goes ring come here and i walked over to her computer she said eagle blew up and i was like what it did yeah. and i walked over there and she showed me this picture that Skylar had sent to Doug because you, you, she got cell phone service on her iPhone from up there. Oh, I guess yeah. That Skylar had sent to Doug and Doug had sent to Kelly. And I was like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. Well, this is the picture. I talked Gary Weber that fall into putting Skylar's picture on the cover of the Lookout Network magazine. Yeah. Oh, whoa. So that's what it looked like that afternoon after this was going on Jeez. when I got back to the airport and saw this photo. Good thing they got out of there. Online. And they have a video also that one of the guys on the crew took when this fire, the fire started way down here. But they have a video of this line of huge flames running up at the edge of this column. It's, it was really amazing. Oh, I bet. So Rhett was in the basement at the time it did this, when it started it. Yeah. Rhett was down in the basement helping him rap, and she was doing something. And, and this is the story I got later. Skyler said, Rhett, I think you need to come out here for a minute. And Rhett came out of the lookout and turned around and saw that. And her eyes got like saucers, and she went right back in the basement and put on the fire clothes that we had up there for <laughs> Good. And yeah. so it was unknown where this was going and how far it had impacted on the west side of Spots Ridge and stuff. It was down a ways. Or if the column was going to shift and come their direction. Yeah. So he immediately got Corey Renneker in the helicopter to go out there and scoop him up. Scoop him up. And yeah. they had to make a couple of trips, but they brought Zumi. Rhett's, Mark and Rhett's dog down in the helicopter too. Oh, really cool. Yeah. And they brought them all back to West Fork. So I'm, you know, I'm talking to people at the station from home because I'm home by then. It's like, yeah. what's going on? You know, is the crew still out there? Skyler and Jake and Sully and those folks were all out there doing a crackerjack job. And they got them down and they called me at like 1030 at night to let me know they were safely down at the station. And oh, good. They had no idea if the lookout was still there or what happened or not. Yeah. The next morning, Doug did a recon out that way with the helicopter and the fire hadn't made it to the lookout. It looked still pretty much like it does in this picture. And so since it had burnt all that strip down below, it kind of nuked out the spring area too and oh. everything. So it was only about three quarters of a mile or something like that, maybe down 
from the from the tower. Jeez. And the tower had had different fires around it, no five and stuff that had partially, you know, fireproof portions of it. Okay. So it probably would have been impact from embers falling more than anything. And yeah. so they, so when he left there, he decided to swing across the Solway because he got a real short view over toward Gardner and it looked like there was fire there. So he flew over there and there was fire within about 150 feet of Gardner on the east side of it. Yeah. So he called the back the station and and told Skylar and her folks to to get ready because they were safely going to be able to fly back and finish the wrap on spot. And then since it hadn't impacted the trail that they would either hike down or the copter would come back up and get them. Yeah. And that he was going to send some folks up to Gardner, called the Nez, and they, they were fine with it. Oh, cool. Send some of our folks up to try and save Gardner because he was pretty sure that the fire was going to get it. So Jake Rao and Dustin Strayer, who works over here with the road crew now. Oh, yeah, yeah. He and Dustin and a couple of others of our folks got flown up to Gardner, and the rap was supposed to come up in a sling net shortly after while the smoke closed in and they couldn't bring it up. Oh, geez. So they were just like, oh, well, hell, you know, I don't know. We'll have to just, and by now it was like within, you know, 70 feet of the lookout on that side and everything. So there's a, there's a small building, like maybe a little bigger than an outhouse in size inside there where the repeater stuff is. Oh, yeah. So just for the hell of it, when we unwrapped it in 2014, we never even looked in there. It was just like, oh, that's where the repeater is, you know, the electronics of it. Jake looked in there, and there was a bunch of wrap and staplers and stuff in there. Oh, man. So they did what they could. The first thing they did, though, was the, the, the only fuel close to the lookout was super dry grass, you know, that was about probably 18, 20 inches tall. Yeah. And so... He and Dustin and the crew did some really quick scratch line, and then they fired it out. Oh, smart. And it, it, because of the wind, the way it was, it was perfect. They were able to burn it down to nothing. But they went ahead and used what wrap they had. Didn't have enough to do everything, but they got the roof and the bulk of it, you know. Yeah, catalog and, probably. And figured that with what they'd done that it was probably going to be okay. Oh, good. And it, and it was. Yeah. It ended up being okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they saved it. Yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we're getting pretty much to the bulk of the end of this stuff because that was 2017, 2018, and then 19, 20, 21, and last year I helped open and close all the West Fork lookouts once again and ended up just doing a lot of air patrol stuff you know, during those years. Yeah. Um, West Fork didn't have any more giant fires during that time period. They had they had one that was pretty close to Boulder Point in twenty seventeen or eighteen that Tebow and the folks that were new that year got to go to. Oh nice. And then they had scattered ones in different places. Doug kinda took a different philosophy, you know, I had seen how things went during the Dave Campbell years and anything. And I mean and there's there's no mandate that you have to let every wilderness fire burn. I mean, no. 
you know, that was never the original intent when Bud Moore and those folks came up with the first plan to let things happen in 71, 72 and there was it had to meet certain parameters. It depended on where it was, what the steepness of the slope was, whether it was a drought year, yeah, what say. kind of fuels it was, Fuel what condition. kind of wind patterns there were. And if this fire met all of these different contingencies in the correct manner, then you could let it burn. Otherwise, you'd go ahead and put it out and wait for another one, another day, you know? Yeah, especially time of year, like that you said. Got, that kind of got lost for a long time. But since it, it wasn't a written law that you had to let every wilderness fire burn, and after our experiences with with Gold Pan in 2013 and stuff, and the fact that 2017 was and 18 both were like super dry. Yeah. And, and we all knew early that they were. And, yeah. And the freaking giant fire that, that wasn't allowed to be put out on Lolo Peak yep. was doing what it was doing. Yep. Doug just decided that those fires that were real early and were small out there and had the potential because of where they were to become kick-ass big, we're going to put them out. Yeah, it's smart because like, you can't count the weather until not even September anymore, right? No. September's been dry for a long time now, so it's yeah. like... If you have something in the beginning of August, end of July, it's, if you can, you put that sucker out. Yeah. and then. But so he, he put out an—I mean, there weren't a real lot of them at all. Yeah. But ones that were in a strategically bad, in terms of fire behavior, or potential mm. for what they could do position. Yeah. He sent Helitac folks or some of our folks out, if they were easy to hike to, and put them out. Yeah. You know? they, yeah, if they got a high spurt potential, you know. Yep. Yep, and makes and sense. It, it worked. It worked good. It yeah. worked really good. So, yeah. So you know that pretty much, the bulk of that pretty much takes us up to, just this last year, which was season forty-seven for me because as soon as I got my first paid day taking a fire line refresher, counted it as a new season. Yeah. And Air Patrol were paid gigs. The the, the volunteer ones basically are two. But, you know, the rate for us is 15 bucks a day, whether you work one hour or 24 hours. So it's not a lot of money. No, that's what you're working. I still don't turn it down. But, you know, so I I counted as season 47 last year and 48's coming up. So some of the statistics that I'm going to just kind of tell you here before we before we put this one to bed today. This is just the air patrol part. So over. The seasons from 96, when I first got to do air patrol flights, until this last year, I've done a total of 256 air Two, patrol flights. 256 flights. 256 flights. The flight hours in the air looking for fires are one-tenth, one-tenth under 766 hours in the air. 776? 766. Oh, 766. Yeah, 765.99, according to my figuring, which is pretty accurate because I keep track of all this stuff. Yeah. That's the way I am. No, that's awesome. The miles flown. So I know pretty much from the three different planes we've flown about what their average speed is, you know, straight and level on these flights because I talk to the pilots and stuff. So basically... Knowing that, 
and the number of hours in the air, and the fact that you have to allow some speed and time differences when you're circling fires and, yeah. and things like that, that my mileage over the forest in those years is 87,581. Jeez, that's nuts, man. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a real lot. Yeah. Jeez. And I flew with, I flew with some really incredible pilots and stuff too. I bet. How many different pilots? Oh, probably total. Delbert flew a lot for a lot of those years. He flew the plane himself, but probably, probably at least 10 or 12 different ones. Jeez. You know? That's a lot of pilots, yeah. The thing that we got to do this last year that was cool and different was that Choice Delbert decided to retire and fold Western Montana Aviation at the end of 2021 season. Oh. So he wasn't going to do air patrol in 22. So Choice Aviation out at the airport got the contracts for Bitterroot Air Patrol, for Lolo Air Patrol, and for the B-Bar-D. Oh, wow. So all the flights for those forests emanate out of Hamilton. That's cool. Yeah. And so... So you might get some other flights? Kurt did all of the Lolo flights. He did them all. And oh. they, they had a bunch last summer. We only yeah. had nine here, but I did all nine of the Bitterroot flights. Oh, cool. And on three of those days, I got to do uh, three B-Bar-D flights. Oh, really? Not the whole forest, but just portions of it that they were concerned about big hole in Pillsbury. we learned and stuff. that if you flow if you fly the whole b bar d the forest the combined forest is so huge that it takes even if you don't find a fire it would take you five and a half hours just to fly around the forest the perimeter of it i bet it's yeah it's huge and if you had the if you found fires and you were going to have to do more you have to land either in dillon or butte to refuel Jeez. We didn't have to do that because we yeah. did the stretch. We would cut across the three I went on. We And thank God that Megan and the other pilot that did Bitterroot flights and did the B-Bar-D flights, they'd both done that for a few years. So they knew where everything was. I oh, mean, I had, I had the scrolling flight map for that forest, but yeah. I'd never actually been there other than our part of the Pintlers, you know? Yeah. So the ones we did for, well, all three flights, but then in addition on the third one where we'd cross on we cross stevensville uh kind of like north of willow yeah. and head out to their side and then we'd fly out to georgetown lake and go north of it and circle that country and come back down and back over and do their part of the pentlers and then we'd fly back onto the bitterroot and, and land oh cool but on the third one we did that exact same thing we never did find any fires on those flights but oh. man it was some spectacular new country that i've never seen in the, the northern part of the pentler wilderness that is really cool that i'd never been in yeah i've never seen it but on that last flight we got to fly the Beaverhead Range too. Yeah, east west of the Big Hole. Yeah, and you know all the times and over the last many years and seventy four since I've lived here, every time I've driven through the Big Hole, it's like those mountains are freaking cool. I wonder what they look like yeah, from beautiful. the air. Well, I finally got to fly it and see it. Oh, really? They're spectacular. Yeah. And most all of those drainages, drainages, big drainages, have anywhere from two to four or more lakes in them, and they're at on shelves at different levels on the way up. Oh, wow. And 
the last time we flew out there was in August this last summer. And I remember a couple of those drainages, the highest lake of that bunch would be the smallest. Oh, and really? it'd be right at the granite with just a few trees around it. And a couple of them still had a big snow area that was coming down into the lake, the oh, top lake. That is super was cool. Really cool. We yeah. went all the way down to the far end and turned around. So going south, I was on that side observing and coming back the pilot was on that side and i was on the other side so i got to look way out over the big hole you know oh cool and you could see all these jillions of black dots on these ranches which were the big cattle herds yeah. and everything yeah oh, oh it, was, cool. it was so cool yeah it's beautiful country there man oh, it was amazing yeah so so that was that's the air patrol part of this whole equation yeah and then just just for the hell of it the the other part um that i don't think i did outline before for you was the the total fires that i actually ended up being on from 76 through 2016 because i didn't go online any after that yeah during those years, so those 41 seasons, was 331, which probably isn't a lot in some places. I know lots of those folks that work down in the southwest on desert fires, they get a lot of fires because they're just going all the time, you know. But you had to consider that a lot of these fires, well, 165 of them were Bitterroot Hotshot Crew fires. And a lot of those fires were a month in duration and stuff like that. So Large fires. Some of them were, some of those 331, a lot of those 331 were, you know, three weeks, a month long. Campaign fires. Yeah, yeah, campaign fires for sure. So some of the some of the other stuff that I kept track of in '88, I managed to work a hundred straight days without having to take a day off. Hundred straight days, jeez, you couldn't do that anymore. No, they'd find you. Because you know when we'd come back, I was the timekeeper for the crew for the hotshot crew. Oh yeah. And when we'd come back, the crew would be off, but time had to be turned in. Yeah. Because we already knew that we were going to leave the second that we got back. You know, we'd referred the rigs before people left for their two days off or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the second we got back, we were going to have another dispatch. So I had to do time. So I wouldn't necessarily be there all day of those days. But since I was there, it still counted as a work day. Yeah, you know? totally. And then there was a 68 straight in 03, a 64 straight in 05. And in 2011, the year of that saddle fire, there was a 39 straight. Jeez. So, you know, that was that's kind of cool stuff. Yeah, really cool, man. In my opinion. Yeah, I think so, too. Total overtime during 76 through 2016 was 17,880.75. 17,000. Jeez. That's a big number. Which is kind of a lot. That is a lot. That's probably more than most people work. In their life, that was in a lot of years. I know yeah. the way things are now, you know, with the hotshot crew, though, boy, if you stay on one a long time and get a thousand hours every season, yeah, it wouldn't take that many that 41 years to do that, but yeah. nonetheless, I'm still pretty proud of it. Yeah, it's like 17 years worth of work there, you know, 84 or yeah, from 1984 through no, let me back that up. I'm not saying that yeah. right. Well, yeah, I didn't say 17 years of work would be like a thousand hour season every season. Whew, that'd be so a lot. from from 84 through 2016, I worked 
27 of 33 Fourth of Julys. <laughs> yeah. So most of them. Most of them, yeah. Yeah, most of them, which was kind of kind of cool too. Yeah. I think well, this last year was one of my first Fourth of Julys off in a long time. Yeah. Trips to West Fork Lookouts. <sighs> yeah. I've only from then to now, from 2001 to now. I mean, I I know that I probably went to each of them for at least four or five times every season and stuff. And so I'm figuring that I've been to West Fork Lookouts probably around 400 times over these past 20 whatever years from 20 oh man from 2001 till now that's amazing i haven't been to any of them yet so man yeah i, I, got, so, I got some trips to do you know those were the stats and then at the end of the season we're almost done folks <laughs> <laughs> at the end of every season in my journal on the last day i would always write do some final entry and i'd try to do it the same evening of my last day of the season but sometimes it'd be the next day or whatever you yeah. know depending on how tired i was yeah. but this is this is pretty pretty typical of what i would write and this is the one from 1992 and i was in the hot crew like i say i still do this even to this day i do it every year that's awesome so our last day that the squad leaders, we got to work a little longer than the crew did to put stuff away and do that, this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this on November 3rd, which was a Tuesday in 1992, Hot Shot Crew Year. Yeah. I put, I wrote, let's see, I wrote this at 23, 20, 23.30, so 11.30 p.m., 22 degrees outside, a clear sky with a half moon, snow on the ground, Ralph Vaughn Williams' composition, The Lark Ascending, is playing on CD. It's a really beautiful classical that I really love. Yeah. I'm in a reflective, contemplative mood, right where I like to be mentally and emotionally for this last entry of the season, the end of something and the beginning of whatever's next. How many times have I been here? How many more times will I be so lucky to be involved with this wonderful crew? Oh, that's awesome. And then... I, it's a big entry, and I talked about some of the fires we had on the Hotshot crew that year, and you know I made a comment that this was the year of the chainsaw because we had a we had an amazing we always did, but we had a really crackerjack Hotshot chainsaw squad that year. Oh yeah, and they'd cut some amazing trees and stuff like that Man. over all these fires, and so I'd given a little kudos to them, and. I ended it with, as always, it's the people who make it special. The togetherness and teamwork are a joy to behold. And when things get rolling and we all mesh, I'm as proud as punch to be a part of it all. The interaction with the other hotshot crews is fabulous fun too. The way we all communicate back and forth and look out for one another in times of crises and while in harm's way is very cool. It's fun getting to hang out with the friends I've made on the other crews. We all share the same spirit of adventure, suffer the same hardships, and revel in the same joys along the way. Those who've been there know this, and they know of the uncertainty and travail of the hotshot lifestyle. Yeah. But actually, I've done this for all of these district crew years, and it's the same, man. I feel the same about all the folks I've worked with and the stuff we've done, how we took care of one another. Yeah. You know, all of this really, 
it's not really it's not really about me it's about me being a part of all these folks that I've got to work with over the year yeah. over the years you know I mean there's just been some of them some of them are lifelong friends that live here in the valley that I've met and who I mean I've known them for for 48 years you know 47 years and stuff like that yeah we're super close but it's the people it's it's watching watching how the new folks grow i mean an example is when i got to west fork in 2001 skylar brown was just a kid on the crew i think it was start of her third season and i got to watch her grow from just a kid on the crew to run in West Fork's hand crew, become an amazingly competent, wonderful, excellent, skilled firefighter and move her way up the ladder and stuff, you know? Yeah. It makes me pretty proud that I got to be one of the people that kind of helped her learn her craft in those early years. Yeah. And she learned the lessons real good. That's and awesome. she isn't the only one. You know, oh, yeah. when Mike Fritzen was on the Hotcha crew on my squad and then sod and stuff like that, who would ever thought, you know, that he'd end up base manager being the base manager in Missoula, the jump base. Yeah. And there are others, you know, along that same line that so uh, cool. it's been it's been really fun watching them grow. They were willing to move and go do things. And that's the way it worked. I didn't want to do that. Like I said before, when I moved to this valley, I found what I wanted and I I just, even to get an appointment, I wasn't going to go away. Yeah. This is where I wanted to live, and, and I'm glad I did it. It worked out, for me, it worked out great. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Amazing story doing that, too. Yeah. You, know, you found your slice of heaven. You all, know? The, all the incredible places that I got to go, that I've gotten to go on fires, um, both here and in all different kinds of places cross country never got to go to alaska yeah. but i did get to go to northern alberta so i got to experience tundra and black spruce and all that stuff so yeah. i kind of know what it's like it's just yep. not the same that i didn't get to go to alaska yeah that's <laughs> and it's been since i left the crew they've gone a lot they've gone a number of times up there yeah. and they've gone to canada at least maybe once or twice also oh really yeah but you know it's the people mm -hmm. so it's, it's always the people getting the work and 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 do the cool stuff that we get to do absolutely yeah big, big, one big family you know and i'm thankful to all the people that i learned from jim crockett jim leverton on the hotshot crew in the beginning bill miller who was my soup in the beginning a lot of people on the districts you know that had been there before me fmos kurt mcchesney on west fork and you know just all of these folks that that I learned stuff from and that I and all of my cohorts over the years got to work together and just just all the all the cool stuff we got to do is yeah, man it's pretty freaking neat it's <laughs> really cool yeah I just relive it well you know and when you're telling your stories too I relive some of my stories but it's uh you know you can't do this all alone you know everyone's got mentors and and family too and one more thing yeah one more picture and then we're pretty much done for today but, yeah. so you know as photographic techniques progressed over the years and, you know, we went from cameras that were negative film cameras to slide cameras to, I mean, I never got a digital camera until probably 2003. Some people were ahead of me. Yeah. But West Fork had one in that first season 
Um, one of the salmon volunteers, for some reason, had to drop out of the schedule for a couple of days. So Kurt McChesney, since the fire danger was high, Kurt McChesney let me just stay on pay and go up there and staff it for a couple of days. And I got to take the station's digital camera. And I took two of my first photos of the sunset from up there. And I, I didn't bring it with me. But mm. I brought I, I took that up there, too. That's cool. And so... You know, digital cameras have made stuff really easy because as everybody's listening who has one or a phone now knows, yeah. you can take as many photos as you want and you, know, you just you just delete the ones you don't want. It's amazing. Yeah, snap you know? a bunch and I keep didn't the think ones I'd like. want a digital camera, but I actually, when I found out some of those things about them and as the megapixels kept increasing, it was like, shit, these things are as good as my slide camera, you know? Yeah. Well, now everybody has digital cameras. And so we never hesitated to take photos of things. And yeah. this is a photo that I got on the Lookout Network magazine that was taken in the fall of 2015 when we closed Salmon for oh, the season. Yeah. Beautiful. Of the, there's, there's subalpine larch up there. Yeah, larch, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, and it's, they're all along the trail on the way up. And, Every year's different. Some years there's a lot more of them than others, but yep, that's what she looks like. Oh, beautiful, man. Yeah. Great photo. And then, of course, Mark Moak has taken the whole thing to a completely different level. Yeah, he's pro, huh? Oh, man. You know, and he's he's got some real, got progressed through some really cool cameras over these last probably eight years or so, especially. And anybody that's seen any of, his, any of his stuff on Instagram knows what he does. Yeah. But I just brought this one because it's one of my favorites. And... It's a Mark Moak or is it yours? This is a Mark Moak photo oh. from Spot that was taken in, on August 3 of 2018 when his daughter Leah and a friend of hers were up there visiting. And, and she and her friend and Rhett are on the catwalk. Oh, wow. Look at the Milky Way there, Milky huh? Way specials. Yeah. He's taken a lot of these, a lot. Man, that's gorgeous. Yep, and he's got good internet up there. They bought their own. They or Actually, oh, yeah. they're using a cell phone booster up at the lookout. Oh, cool. And so Mark has a 600-millimeter has a digital telephoto lens that he can double to double that to 1200 millimeter wow and he takes a lot of pictures of fires out in the spot country and he can immediately download them to his computer and send them off to west fork Man. so brett and the fire staff folks can look at them you know and see see what they think that's beneficial for sure that's awesome man that's a great photo yeah oh man appreciate yeah. you mark and Rhett. yeah for you sure know, both yeah 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 so all those lookouts count and all that that stuff of I was saying about the people that that are have become really good friends and yeah. who you know we've had plenty of adventures and them helping us on the ground and we getting them out of places when they needed to be safe yeah and all that good stuff you know yeah I think we always say fire is part of the family but it's all the, the outdoorsy folks you know foresters BLM state you know all the folks that are out there volunteers you know yeah. like appreciate all of them man and that last thing that was cool that was really cool from last summer that. The flights were pretty much over, and West Fork started having those fires out in the corridor. And Brett picked me up as an AD, a paid rate, to drive fuels and supplies to the folks 
working all along the corridor, protecting Magruder for possible you know, in case anything came that way and all the way down to paradise and they wrap bridges and put out sprinklers and Skyler and I early on and all that, when that twist fire started, got to go out and head up the wrap of, uh, of the horse heaven cabin. I was going to say, I saw, yeah, I'm friends with Skylar on Instagram and she put up some cool photos of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I let her have that one. I did, I did a time lapse of the complete wrap. It took us, I think four hours and it compressed into 35 seconds or something like that. I think she put that on Instagram. She did. She put it on. That was cool. Yeah. So we got to do that. And then I got to spend a whole month driving supplies, uh, gas and diesel and equipment pumps, sometimes pulled the trailer didn't work every day, but worked the bulk of probably about 35 days hauling stuff out and then back at the end. Yeah. And that was cool because, like I said, I didn't get to go on the line or anything, but I got to hang out with all the folks. Got to meet Pat from the Hotcha crew when he went out as a trainee. Assignment. Oh, Pat Mitchell? Yeah, yeah trainee great. gig as an IC Type 4 trainee. Yeah, great guy. Some of the Westwork folks got to do the same thing, and visiting resources were there. And the last short story is there was a contract engine, a Native American guy, it was called Smoke Signals Fire or something like that from up, not as far as Browning, but up that way. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and they were there, three of them. And his father, I can't remember if I told you this or not, but this guy's father was Native American, was a smoke jumper in Missoula in the late 1940s. Whoa. Tough. He, he, was, he was, when the, the call came in for a fire at Mangulch, he was on the plane suited up and ready to rock with those guys. They were all in a DC-3. Yeah. Um, Dodge was still in the building, you know, getting the final information and stuff. And he came out to the plane, Wag did, and he said, well, guys, we just found out we have another start and I need two volunteers to go to this other fire, Two Manor. So this guy's dad and this other guy volunteered to go to the other fire. Oh, save their lives, maybe. And (laughs) I said to him when he told me that, I said, holy smokes, you wouldn't even be here talking to me if your dad had gone on that fire, probably. Yeah. He goes, yeah, I know. But you, it's just a huge circle. You run into these people and learn these stories like I, there hasn't been a season that stuff like that doesn't happen. Yeah. Or you meet somebody that's staffed. A guy can, his wife came through Magruder last summer when we were out there. He was looking around. I went up to talk to him and, you know, the road would be open and closed, the Elk City Road periodically. Yeah. And they came through from that way, just driving trip. And it turns out he'd staffed salmon in 1950. And he said, I saw the sign, you know, and I really wanted to hike up there, but I was afraid that the lookout isn't even there anymore, you know, and I didn't know what the trail was like and all that. And I said, well, I'll tell you, I was there last week because we did the pack string to bring down the bulk of stuff from up there. And then next week, we're probably going to go up and close the place up. And I said, I've got some pictures of it right here on my phone. And I showed him. He was thrilled to no end that it was still there. And he said... It looks exactly like I remember. Oh, man, you probably have some amazing memories. It's cool. But stuff like that happens. It happens all the time. It does, yeah. It's not that rare. These people, you know. And still, you know, like I said, this last Sunday, I went to that Hackett reunion with Sandy, 
and I talked to Harvey Hackett and found out he'll be 90 next year. Found out that in 53, on summer break from college, he staffed Mount George way up the white cap on West Fork, the L4 that used to be up there yeah. that summer. So, That's so cool. I'm gonna, I'm, I already talked to him and I'm gonna get together with him up at his place and I asked him if, he, if I could record an interview with him and stuff. And I've got some pictures that I'm gonna take out to show him. And That'd be cool. Yeah, and he's got some that I that I want to see too and stuff like that. So yeah. just comparing notes and it stuff. It goes on and on, man. It does. It goes on and on. Yeah, never ending cool really. Stuff. So we're done. But just as a preface, we've decided that we're going to do one more. And this next one is primarily going to be basically just all lookout stuff. I've done a number of interviews with folks going back as far as 1920, 1927, and in between over the years. And I'm going to bring some of the materials related to that. And we can just talk about and read some excerpts from the things that they told me and stuff like that. So that'll be awesome. Finally, we'll do, we'll do an all the lookout podcast will be all lookouts yeah, next time. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be cool. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope everyone else is too. And I want to throw a teaser out there, because the last time I talked to you, you said you had uh, a letter from Norm McLean. Was that right? I do, and yeah. I will bring those. So we could talk about that too. So a little yep. teaser for folks to tune in the next one too. The, I mean, all these are great. but even Thanks, like, and yeah. I appreciate it. You know, it, it's always fun for me to reminisce about all these years and stuff. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm the type that documented it, you know, me too. I documented a lot. It's fun. I still sometimes in the summer, I mean, I've got, I had scattered journals way back but from the summer of 84 till this last summer, I documented virtually everything and I could pick out the fire years from 84 through the end of 2016. I've done this before, you know, I'll be at home and I'll go, I wonder what I was doing on July 20th on in whatever year. Yeah. And I can pull out my journals and I know exactly what I did. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's why man. I can remember a lot of it, just because I've got all that. You yeah, know? over the journal and the memory comes right back. And you photo know? albums and, you know, just all, all kinds of good stuff. But yeah. Awesome. Anyway, it's been fun. I'm glad you let me ramble. Oh man, I'm glad you I'm glad <laughs> glad you came on, man. I really appreciate you. I appreciate having you, and I think all the folks do too, man. I'm getting a lot of good feedback for it. So thanks, and being here in the airstream is really cool too. Yeah, I think it kind of brings it all together, man. And you know, adding things slowly. But uh, well, thanks for tuning, everybody. We're gonna have one more episode at, at least. We're, we're for sure having one more. I'm probably do more than that. But uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you.